Emergency Medicine Abstract with Sanjay and Mike. I think it's time, Michael. For what? To go play. <laughs> play outside. <laughs> I don't know. Run around in circles. What a lot of people don't realize is that we've been like just doing other stuff for like six, seven hours now. We've been together for six, seven, and Sanjay's like, oh, we're supposed to do EMA. Right. Because like, so, we, we just get so into doing things together. Stuff. Yeah. Like literally, you know, Mike comes over maybe at like your know, nine a.m. to start recording, and we start. We're, we'll be like, "What do you want to talk about in the intro?" Six hours later, <laughs> yeah, we need to right. sit down and do it because we just have. But we did in that intervening six hours, we did make some really cool stuff because we wanted to make more room for activities right. I, in I, this house. So we, you know, I didn't know how much you knew about power tools. So much like another stepbrothers reference, for some reason, I feel kind of out of breath. <laughs> I've been yeah. watching cops. And that's one that I use all the time. <laughs> You're like, hey, why are you out of breath? I'm like, I've been watching Cops. I love that movie so much. But we have said that we're going to start assigning 80s yeah, homework. Yeah, well, we talked about it in an not intro. Not early 2000s homework. Yeah, we talked about it in an intro a couple of months ago. And it was we kind of got called out on not actually yeah, doing yeah. it. So, and to be honest, By we sort listeners of and editors. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of forgot to do it, but I think what we're going to do for this month is kind of, which I kind of ran this by Amanda, by the way. Oh, did you? And she has never even heard of this show. Which show? Perfect Strangers. She's never heard of Perfect Strangers. Had never heard of it. Married to you. Yeah. Never heard of Perfect Strangers. I said, never heard of Balki Bartakamus, never heard of Meepos. She looked at me. Never heard of Meepos. Yeah. So if you've never- I recently- Went online. This is like, you know, within the past year for no good reason whatsoever, but to find a like Meepos t shirt. Just yeah. that it says, like, you know, I vacation in Meepos. Yeah. Welcome to Meepos. Yeah. yeah. It was difficult. You could get one on Etsy. That's it. So, you know, if you want a challenging one to start with, try to find an episode of Perfect Strangers somewhere online. If, if you'd like a specific episode, I'd recommend the Bibi Babka episode. So, yeah, just to be absolutely favorites. clear. Perfect Strangers is a television show that is extraordinarily popular for several years. Yeah, it was part of TGIF. Yeah, it was part, it was of, part TGIF. of TGIF lineup. Yeah, and Balki Bartakamos was the lead character. He was from Mipos. And if you are and he laughing moves in, and chuckling, and with he moves in with Le- his cousin, cousin Larry, cousin Larry, Larry. Appleton. <laughs> and it's a delightful romp through 80s sort of TV nostalgia. So why, why, get a little taste, get a little flavor. Maybe it doesn't age well. I'm not even sure. I haven't seen it in like decades. It's, but it's I remember a, it's probably loving like it. hugely racist and all sorts of stuff. But I remember we're loving it. it on Friday nights. Yeah, of course. And then I was watching that television show that just came out, Acapulco, you know, which if you listen to it out there, I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's an interesting show and it's set in the 80s in Acapulco at a resort where this uh, kid from the streets of Acapulco, you know, gets a job as a pool boy and it's sort of his shenanigans and such like that. It's not a great show, but I kind of decided that I liked it at the end. There's some cool stylistic things. And one of the reasons I really liked it is that in every episode, they have this duo of Spanish language singers. Like a lounge singer Like act. a lounge singer act that sing a popular song from the 80s, but in Spanish. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It is. It's like comma chameleon and stuff like that. It's like amazing, great stuff. And then they also incorporate a lot lot of other um, songs into it as well. And so I decided that I was going to give everybody a song that I just heard last night when I was watching. I think it was the, the last episode or the penultimate episode of the series or of the show for this season. And it was 
Peter Townsend's Let My Love Open the Door, which is a great song and very atypical of Peter Townsend. It doesn't sound like the Who at all or anything like that. It's just real poppy, real 80s, and I loved it. And I listened to it like 12 times on the way over here and in the six hours while we were making all the jungle gyms in your, in your bedroom. So uh, all of you guys treat yourselves. It's three minutes long. You'll enjoy it. You know, if you want another 80s, sort of that new wave era song that popped in my head recently because, you know, Rhea loves listening to First Wave and she always picks a song that she just clings onto. And her current song is Promises, Promises. Oh, fantastic. Uh, which I was talking to my residents about on my last shift. They had never heard. I'm not 100% surprised, but that takes me right back to seventh grade. I mean, yeah. that's like, I'm like right there. You know? So it's funny because, you know, Rhea always wants to know who sings a song. So I told her, I'm like, the name of the band is Naked Eyes. Mm-hmm. To which she replied, but daddy, eyes are always naked. <laughs> and you're like, exactly. <laughs> so it's, you know, just that three-year-old level of insight yes. into words. So anyway, there's some homework assignments for you. One thing I think we did want to talk about in this intro, which is Mike and I just finished participating in the MRAP 1 conference. Perhaps is, you've heard of it. So this is sort of, you know, Mel's big return to form in the conference scene and, uh, I can say totally unbiased. We it were, was awesome. We were awesome. <laughs> the whole thing was so awesome. Oh, it was, really, it was really well done. They're Britt did an awesome job putting it on. Yeah. You know, I, there was like some real highlights with, you know, mm-hmm. Billy Madeline coming back. I think yeah, if that you was, guys are listening and you haven't heard or watched Billy's talk, do it. Do it. It is a treat. You know, yeah, Billy catch up a, on the whole conference. Yeah. But I think, you know, that really was something exceptional to listen to. And through some uh, bribery, extortion, and some other things, Mike and I managed to get Rick and Jerry back on the stage back together stage, with doing us, EMA with Live. Ken. It was, was like the whole EMA crew. And that was kind of, I think, a nice big surprise for everybody. Yeah. And to see them up there again, right back in, I mean, they are, you know, the godfathers of EMA mm-hmm. were just following caretakers. Their the caretakers of the yeah. program. Yeah. So MRAP1 was awesome. Do yeah. yourself a favor, catch up on it. And speaking of awesome, I think we've got an awesome month. Are you sure about that? July. <laughs> July's ahead. We've got 20 abstracts for yep. you this month. Yep, 20 abstracts. And then we've got, we'll ultra summarize the 20 abstracts. Yeah, well, Jess and Jenny. Jenny will. Mm-hmm. And then Ken and Swami doing okay. Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. Triple T-A-L-N. And what are they talking about again this month? They are talking about normalizing numbers. Norm. Norm <laughs> from Cheers. Right. Eliza from Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> at all and uh, numbers so normalizing gonna... numbers you know, i didn't realize that numbers were so outside of the mainstream that they required normalizing but hey apparently they you know, and i gotta say the 20 papers this month that mike and i are gonna be talking about at least from my half a little different not a lot of big trials and stuff I mean, you know we can only work with what's published over the course of the month so you know if you're into like big randomized control trial this is not the month for you <laughs> skip uh, <laughs> but there actually is kind of a lot of interesting smaller stuff and stuff yeah. from journals we've never covered before and I'm, I'm kind of excited about the month yeah i have a couple of weird ones i have one just straight up thought piece and i'm not sure you know exactly if i understood all the thoughts but i'm gonna try to summarize it so that should be pretty fun it's cool. by chris carpenter's towards the end in the house of medicine section so it's a very well-written paper, and I'm just I'm still trying to wrap my head around what it all means. So there's there's some thought-provoking stuff, but I, I agree with you. I don't have as many of the you know 22,000 patients, aspirin yeah. versus nothing kind Even of. Even my paper chaser for the month, abstract number one. It's it's a funky one. You know, we chose it. I'm going to talk about it, but uh, I'll say this: it's definitely never been covered on EMA before. That's that's for sure. Maybe that's what vaulted it to the top. So shall we? Shall we jump? Shall we dive? Shall we roll? Let's do it. 
pay for Chase. Abstract number one. Emergency department visits before sudden unexpected infant death. A touch point for unsafe sleep reduction. This is by Cappy et al. from Academic Pediatrics. So sudden unexpected infant death, or SUID, is the leading cause of infant death after the first month of life and accounts for more than 3,400 deaths annually in the U.S. So just thinking about the terminology here, because we hear SIDS a lot and SUID is something different. So SUID includes all unexpected deaths, including those that eventually get an identified cause, which most of the time is suffocation, and those that don't get an identified cause, and those are called SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. So when you have a case of this, a little baby that dies in the ER, I feel like nothing brings the place to a grinding halt like this case. You know, it's very hard to focus on the rest of your shift. It's hard for nurses to get back in the game. It's like it's, it really is a crushing blow, can be, to the morale of the emergency department. And we don't see a lot of papers talking about sort of the, the topic in general. So I think that maybe why— Certainly not that are related to emergency medicine in any way, right? Yeah, and we do this see one, them occasionally right. from general pediatrics and stuff like that, but we usually don't cover And this them. one really is focused on the ER. So although unsafe sleeping conditions— are the leading preventable cause of SUID, and there are many evolving and expanding initiatives to educate the public on safe sleeping techniques. So this is a, you know, they do this like back is best campaign and all sorts of things. The rate of SUID has not changed very much over the last 20 years. And the authors of this paper say, hey, they're doing a lot of stuff, but none of them are based out of the emergency department. And they're kind of saying, should we? The authors point out that since infants have high rates of ED use, it's possible we might be able to play a role in prevention, but they kind of say we're busy. They know that. So to justify this effort, it needs to be shown that infants with SUID do in fact visit an emergency department or urgent care before death. This is a retrospective cohort study from a single county in Ohio of infants less than 12 months of age identified via largely coroner's records between 2014 and 2020, where the cause of death was sewage, and linked them, linked all these cases back to their individual medical records. They also gathered data from autopsy reports and policed investigations with interviews and investigations of the scene and things like that. Sounds like a big study. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of effort, that's for sure. But after excluding patients who died from a known cause, like illness or something like that, there were 73 cases of suet, right? So they were healthy, healthy, and then passed. The median age at death was 87 days, and 93% died before six months of age. Just over a quarter, 27%, had an unexpected visit to an emergency department or urgent care before death. The median days between the visit and death was 39. So it's not, you know, if it was a day before, probably would have been related to that illness. It wouldn't have been called a suid. So it's not that surprising. It's kind of far away. And most were from minor medical issues. So then to classify safety, they assessed four different data elements. And most of the time, these actually were recorded somewhere between the police investigation and the coroner's report and stuff like that. It was sharing a sleep service, what the actual sleep surface was that the baby was sleeping on, 
the sleeping position, and surrounding soft bedding items. And basically, they found that 100% of these suid infants were found to have at least one unsafe sleeping factor. 88% had greater than or equal to 2, and 56% had greater than or equal to 3. Now, there are some limitations here, including it's a single-center study. The data elements were missing on some of the cases, largely due to variability in the scene records, the police on-scene records, and there was a lack of a clear description of the review methods themselves. So they just sort of said we looked at all these things but didn't go into a lot of detail. We also don't know how many babies who didn't experience suey had these same unsafe sleeping conditions, right? Which is obviously important to understand how relevant they are. Now, their own data shows this to be an incredibly rare event, but the fact that it is likely preventable, at least a large number of the cases, and existing outreach and educational strategies appear to have maximized their effectiveness over the last 20 years with no change in the rate, the authors kind of say, maybe it's time to look for an alternative place to do some education. They're not saying we should drop everything and, you know, make this the forefront of the priority. Interestingly, as I was reading my, you know, just reading through the news this morning while having a coffee, I saw that yesterday the Senate passed the Safe Sleep for Babies Act, which was passed in the House last year. So now it goes to President Biden's desk to be signed, I guess, which effectively bans crib bumpers and beds that incline to more than 10 degrees from being sold in the United States. So that this has turned out to be a little more relevant than I thought, you know, because people have been talking about that for a long time. And that is something they didn't look at here. But this inclined sleep position is also found to be, you know, somewhat dangerous. There's a lot, there's this thing called the rock and play, which you may have heard of before, which, you know, basically has been banned from the market, this Fisher Price thing, because 50 or so babies, their death has been linked to being slept in this thing. And it's been around for a long time. So I think the reason this made it to the paper chase level was not because of high quality of science. It's just because I'm not sure that there is a place on the MRAP program in general. We might even talk about something like this, safe sleep for babies. Um, Before I had my own baby, I knew nothing about it. Like I had no idea about any of these concepts. And even if you don't want to go out and start incorporating this into, you know, your practice, I mean, you could think about things where the ER could be a touch point, right? Maybe it could be added to a post-visit discharge instruction or something like that. Maybe there's a link for a video. Or maybe you say, hey, this sounds important, and you're going to incorporate it into sort of your routine list of questions you ask when you see a baby, like your vaccinations, feeding, are they stooling okay? What's the sleeping situation? You know, I'm not saying you should do that, but you could imagine yourself doing it. But also, I do kind of see our job as being good stewards of public health. So I think at least knowing about these things, and if somebody asked you, hey, is there something I'm supposed to be doing about sleeping with my baby? At least now you'll know what are unsafe sleeping conditions. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cohort study, the authors show that although it is a very rare event, a quarter of kids who experience sudden unexpected infant death were seen in an emergency department prior to the event, and all cases identified had at least one unsafe sleeping condition. They suggest that the emergency department could represent a real venue for future interventions But if nothing else, I think as providers, we should be aware of sleep factors associated with SUID and consider educating patients about them or screening for them in the right clinical environment. 
Abstract number two, covert brain infarction in emergency department patients, prevalence, clinical correlates, and treatment opportunities. This is by Balderson et al., and this is in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So the study on its face is about how often patients have old stroke identified on CT in the absence of acute symptoms. But for me, it's really about how well we communicate important incidentalomas to our patients in emergency medicine. The notion here is that patients who have CT evidence of asymptomatic old stroke might be able to further risk reduce themselves so that they don't suffer a symptomatic stroke. But they can only do that if they're made aware of the finding. The authors here conducted a single-site retrospective review of all the patients who presented to Virginia Commonwealth ED in 2018. To be included, the patients had to have a CT scan, be over the age of 50, and must have been discharged from the ED without being admitted or placed in an observation status. And the reason for that was that the medical record just becomes too diffuse and it's hard to tell if anybody documents that like someone told you or didn't tell you about whether there were any findings. Patients with known history of stroke or any kind of ischemia on prior imaging were excluded. So these are people that seemingly had no history of stroke. They do all this stuff. Covert brain infarcts were considered positive for large territory strokes or lacunar strokes, but things like periventricular white matter disease and things like that were not considered you know, evidence of covert brain infarction. So the incidence of these covert brain infarctions was the primary outcome. After that, the authors reviewed all the medical records to identify any documentation that the patient or their caregiver had been made aware of that finding. The chart review methods are not pristine. For example, it's not clear if the abstractors were blind to the purpose of the study. That's not explicitly stated. They did conduct a kappa calculation to determine interrater reliability for a variety of, of variables, and it was extremely high, like 0.92 to 1. So at least they did that. Ultimately, they identified 832 patients with CT scans for inclusion. So this is, again, over 50 CT, no prior history of uh, stroke. The most common indication for CT scan was fall or trauma. And then I think after that, the next most common was for altered mental status. Mean age was 62, 50% men, 50% women. Covert brain infarction was identified in 95 cases, or 11% of the CT scans. Only nine of those 95, so 9%, of these patients were clearly made aware of the CT findings of old stroke. The authors then go on to describe how many of them were prescribed aspirin or advised to stop smoking or any of those kinds of things. The corresponding numbers were small. 20% were already on aspirin. Of those not already on aspirin, only two had it added to their medication list. Of the patients with covert stroke who were active smokers, none were documented to have been counseled to stop smoking. For good measures, the authors looked at those patients who had a neurologic consultation while they were in the ED. Again, this was not for the covert brain infarction. This was for their altered mental status or whatever else. And there weren't very many of them. There were only nine cases of that. And for the record, of those nine who had altered mental status, got a CT scan, had a neuro consult, still only two of those nine were told of their covert brain infarction, either by the emergency medicine team or the neurology team. Hmm. Okay, so they're not just pointing the finger at no, us. Then, they're saying at all. that this happens Sounds all like the time. we got the brain specialist down here. Yeah. His job it is to look at brainy brain related stuff. Yeah. 
And even they didn't do it. Right. So this is a, I mean, you can see it, right? This is a ubiquitous problem. Now, you know, this is a limited single site study. It's possible that some of these people or their caregivers could have already known about the prior history of stroke and it just wasn't documented. Somebody fell and hit their head and nobody bothered to say they had a prior history of stroke. It wasn't that relevant. We're just interested in bleed. And it's also possible that some of them were told about it and it just wasn't documented in the record. So this probably is a low-end estimate of the covert brain infarction documentation or discussion rate. Still, it rings true, right? I mean, how many times do you get some abnormal finding that's not related to the chief complaint and you're just happy enough to move on from that and tell the patient, hey, good news, you know, you didn't have a brain bleed or something like that. I think that that's, that's really just a truth. You know, I think um, this just quantifies it and maybe it's a little bit low end of the estimate, but I think this is probably correct. And again, it's not just us, it's everybody who's focused on an acute complaint in the emergency department, such as the neurologists. And the ED we're heavily focused on chief complaints. I mean, I often say we, we do chief complaint-based medicine. And when we find things that are unrelated, we may forget to let people know about these, quote, incidental findings that ultimately may be more important than anything else that we found because it you know, allows them to you know, do risk factor modification that might affect their lives. Again, I can think of a million things like EKG findings, Q waves. Have you ever told a patient that they had Q waves on their EKG that suggests they had a previous MI? I mean, you start thinking about this, you're like, man, I really haven't done this a lot. And while I don't think it's malpractice to not have told people, it certainly has some implications for their ability to manage their own health. I don't have a solution. They don't have a solution in this thing. I think that maybe some of these electronic patient portals offer some opportunities for people to review scans with their primary care physician like weeks or months later once they've cured themselves or they've been cured of their acute medical issue and there's a little bit more time and maybe some you know neurocognitive function so you can process all the information that's come. But I think this just sort of highlights the need for us to advise people to review their medical records, think about it, etc. I often like to think of asynchronous ways that we could do this, have somebody look at the ED record after the fact you know, it doesn't, wouldn't take very long to just say, is there anything in here that, you know, maybe somebody should have communicated to the patient, dropped them a note or something like that. We don't have those interventions. This is more of a, here's the problem. You know, it's up to us now to sort of think through how we're going to intervene on it. Yeah. And I think, I think this is, you know, definitely something worth talking about because just because you didn't find what you were looking for, you still found something. Absolutely. Right? I mean, I think that's what this all boils yeah. down to. So it's hard to go, well, this isn't what I was looking for exactly. Right. So I'm going to consider it irrelevant, even though in this case, it was a stroke. Yeah. That's, you know, that's something. Well, we call them incidental lomas. Yeah. And, and by that nature of calling things that, it trivializes it. I was just going to yeah. say that. Yeah. I wonder if it's the term that yeah. has been ingrained in all of our brains that yeah. make us go, ah, this was, I wasn't expecting this. Ipso facto, I don't have to do anything about it, you know? And it's not relevant, right? You do a scan of a neck and you find a little tumor here, a little strange looking lymph node there, but it was, I was looking for a broken neck, you know? It's like, that's clearly incidental to the acute thing. It's not incidental to potentially their life. So, you know, again, I like this. I think that this is the next stage of emergency medicine where we're thinking sort of a little more holistically about the patient? How do we integrate ourselves and the findings? We're doing a lot of diagnostics Do you think the it's ED? worth, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this, you know, like as we have EMRs now and things mm-hmm. like that, where we have a lot of dot phrases for things. Mm-hmm. Like, I almost wonder if it's worth creating a dot phrase that's like, you know, just put in your medical record, 
and say, you know, something was unexpected was found on the patient's imaging or lab studies that is not related to the reason why they're here. This invasion was, you know, conveyed to the patient and they were advised to speak to their PMD about something. I mean, you should actually do it, obviously, right, yeah. too. But, you know, it almost seems to me like we don't do this a lot. It's a good reminder to do it and maybe even a good reminder to document it. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% on board with a dot phrase or something that's built into your general stuff that, you know, hey, things get found in emergency medicine by the nature of what we do. We are looking for things that are related to your chief complaint, and we may not think to tell you when we're counseling. I mean, really, something as forward as that, you must review this with your primary care doctor. Having said that, that just ends up in a pile of paper that the patients don't read. It might help us if they ever progress to a legal situation or something like that, which is, you know, that's a- That happens. And the black and white stuff is the stuff that usually gets you into or out of trouble, right? And the judgment stuff is where it's like not, you know, it's a little more nuanced. So I don't disagree with what you're saying about some kind of phraseology, but of course, the most important thing is to actually let to them do know it. Editor's commentary. Incidental covert brain infarction is seen relatively commonly in older patients who have a CT obtained in the emergency department for unrelated reasons. This single-site study suggests that patients are rarely informed of these findings, which could reduce the patient's ability to engage in risk factor modification that might prevent future symptomatic stroke. Hospitals and ED physicians should take steps to ensure that this type of information is reliably communicated. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. The emergency department incidence of incidental intracranial aneurysm on CT angio, the EPIC ACT study, this by Wong et al. from the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, and this sounds very similar to abstract it's, number two. I, you know, it's funny that when we were prepping All, this... almost seems like we may have planned it. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't, did we? I don't well, think we did. We did? I, I did remember. the numbering this one. We did this one. Yeah, it was a bit of a plan. But yeah, but they are... It's a to- now, that we've ta- now that we've talked about it, it sort of yeah. ruined the coolness of it. No, the, but that's not true at all. The, the sort of issues here are, are sort of orthogonal to that's one right. another. So working up a patient for subarachnoid hemorrhage has so many points of controversy about it, including who to work up, which patients deserve a workup, the sensitivity of the CT scan at different time intervals, and what to do in cases where subarachnoid hemorrhage is not completely ruled out by a negative CT. The focus of this paper focuses on that last controversy, which basically boils down to lumbar puncture versus CTA. Now, although LP has been the go-to test for decades, it does have some disadvantages, including ED provider time, potential pain for the patient, some degree of technical difficulty, which can vary based on the patient you know, in front of you that you're trying to tap, rare complications, which in truth are very, very rare, and occasional uncertainty in the diagnosis even after completion of the tap because of the possibility of a bloody tap or something like that, trying to interpret red blood cell counts that decrease from tube 1 to tube 4. So CTA has been offered up as an alternative. And although advocates of it point out the fact that it's incredibly easy from the provider perspective, which it is, you just push order CTA, right? <laughs> although and now that we have a nationwide shortage in of the, a, con- of, yeah. you know, the contrast agent, we can't do that, but, or it's much more complicated, but but point taken. Yeah. So it's easy from, yeah. I guess, a provider perspective, but opponents of it point out that the risk of identifying an incidental and asymptomatic aneurysm 
is not insignificant and could impact the patient in a profoundly negative way moving forward in the form of unnecessary procedures, future testing, cost, and morbidity. But the rate of finding incidental aneurysms is also debated because most of the understanding of these numbers comes from cadaveric studies and MRI-MRA-based studies, not from ED patients being worked up for a headache. Right. So the authors attempt to fill in this gap a little bit by conducting a retrospective review of all cases of CTA head and neck performed in adult patients from four emergency departments in Calgary, Alberta over a three-month period, excluding those who had previously documented aneurysms. The primary outcome was the rate of unruptured incidental aneurysm, which they defined as after conducting a manual chart review, there were no further diagnoses made about this aneurysm, there were no further presentations about the aneurysm, and looked like no procedures related to the aneurysm either. So totally incidental. They identified 1,089 CTAs, 52% female and a mean age of 64.6 years. Just under half of the exams were done either for a workup of stroke or dizziness. They found 36 incidental aneurysms, so a final rate of 3.3%. Now, this number actually is in line with cadaveric and other data on the topic But there are two main limitations that I think warrant our attention. Number one, this is still not the population of interest, which is patients with severe headache in the emergency department getting a CT. Now, the authors comment that there were simply not enough of these Mm. to provide enough power to draw any real conclusions. They're in there. But it's mostly stroke patients. There were 108 of them. I see. Uh, And three of them had an incidental aneurysm. So again, that goes in line with that sort of 3% number. Number two, their definition of incidental may actually be an underestimate. Yeah, it's really restrictive. Because if they had a procedure, they would not be considered as incidental, but it's possible the procedure itself was unnecessary, that they only got the procedure because, you know, a neurosurgeon saw there was a person with a headache with an aneurysm. They're like, I think I'm supposed to clip that or do yeah, something I, about I've it. I've talked about this before, but I've talked to my neurosurgeons, very highly esteemed neurosurgeons who tell me, hey, look, if I get called about a patient or refer to a patient with an aneurysm who's presented to the headache, how do I really know that that's not the cause of it? So, and I don't want them to have to go to the ER every time they have a headache. So I'll, I'll go and coil it. Basically. Yeah, that's exactly. And this yeah. could be the worst kind of outcome, right. and those people didn't make this incidental aneurysm lift at right. all. So exactly. probably this Low is an underestimate, estimate. but if you wanted sort of an idea of the potential harm of CTA in ED patients, this is probably the closest data we have to date. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cohort study, the authors report an incidental aneurysm rate of just over 3% among patients getting a CTA head and neck. Although it is ED patients, it's still not the exact cohort of interest, which is patients in the ED with a headache. But I do think this is the closest data to this population we may see for a while. I feel the rate is actually an undercount, and for that reason, prefer a CTLP strategy to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage 
but I do see a role for shared decision-making in individual patient encounters. The downstream consequences of incidental asymptomatic aneurysms may be both costly and significant. Abstract number four, does hospital admission slash observation for chest pain improve patient outcomes after emergency department evaluation for suspected acute coronary syndrome? Question mark. This is by Adam Sharp et al. in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. So this is a great study from Adam Sharp at Kaiser and Ben Sun at UPenn, among others on the author list, that beats up on our current practice to chest pain evaluations. The research question is whether admitting or observing ED patients with chest pain in the hospital improves outcomes in terms of death, MI, or other major adverse cardiac outcomes if, and this is a very important caveat, they have not been diagnosed with an MI in the ED. So this is, you know, they get a couple negative tropes and someone says, eh, they're kind of high risk, I want to put them in the hospital. Now, this is not a particularly easy question to answer. Ideally, what you would do is an RCT, right? Where you do a quick rule out in the ED and you randomize people to go home and follow up with your doctor versus be admitted to the hospital and let the cardiologist do and everybody do what they want to do and chase outcomes. But that study has never been performed. That randomized control trial has never been performed. Instead, the authors here used advanced observational methods. In particular, they use instrumental variable analysis, which we've covered a few times in the past, but you know, I think it's important to review to understand this paper. This type of analysis, this IV analysis, attempts to eliminate unobserved biases by identifying a variable that affects the exposure of interest, but does not otherwise directly affect the outcome of interest. In this case, one of the instruments they use is the time of day a person presents to the ER. They hypothesize that if a person presents later in the evening to the ER, that that patient would be more likely to be admitted to the hospital as opposed to someone who presented earlier in the day. And this, this is true. They saw that this is the case. And they attribute that to the idea that if you come in early, you can get stress tests or whatever stuff done in the ER during that day. If you show up at 9 p.m., no one's available to help you. No cardiologist, no stress people, blah, blah, blah. So you're more likely, and the ED is crowded, so you're more likely to just punt them upstairs, even if otherwise they're the same. So you show up later, you're more likely to be admitted. But this isn't the important part. Showing up later shouldn't have any independent effect on your mortality, right? It's not like people who show up at 9 p.m. have worse MIs than people who or show up Or your risk of coronary disease in general. Right, exactly, precisely. So basically, if showing up later in the day is associated with lower mortality, it may be reasonable to attribute this difference to the effect of hospitalization after controlling for other observable confounders. They also used a second instrument, which is the hospital's historical admission rate. Again, the theory being that going to a hospital that admits a lot of people for when they have ruled out for MI will increase the probability that you'll be admitted, but should otherwise not affect your individual mortality. So they did all this using data from Kaiser Southern California System, 13 centers, yielding about 80,000 eligible ED chest pain patients who did not have an MI. Of those, 11,000 were admitted. Only 322 experienced a primary adverse outcome within 30 days, which was death, MI, revascularizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the punchline. In the main instrumental variable analysis, they did not find any benefit to hospitalization for such patients. That is the rate of those outcomes, whether when they broke it all down, whether it was MI, whether it was death, whether it was revascularization, 
was the same for those patients who showed up early versus those who showed up late, right? So the effect of hospitalization was nil. On a sensitivity check, they actually identified a little bit of harm where they said, you know, there's actually a statistically significant evidence that being hospitalized is worse for you, that the rate of death and all these things are a little bit higher for hospitalized patients. But that was only on one sensitivity check and the number needed to harm was very high. It was like 300. So again, this is another observational study, this one using different but pretty advanced econometric techniques showing that patients who rule out in the ED have a really low rate of MACE and this does not appear to be affected by hospitalization. Now, this analysis, and this is important, doesn't mean that hospitalization is not valuable for some patients. This analysis only speaks to that marginal patient, right? The one who would have been discharged if they'd showed up at 9 a.m., but admitted at 9 p.m. So, you know, if you're talking about somebody with crushing substernal chest pain, multiple cardiac risk factors, ST depressions, but has a negative troponin, that person's getting admitted whether they show up at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. So they would not, they're not on that margin. And you could think of it in like a randomized trial, that person would be excluded, right? You wouldn't do a randomized trial randomizing that person to send them home and see what happens versus being admitted to the hospital. So it's that marginal case. And that's actually kind of hard for a clinician to know, but it's those cases where you're on the fence. It appears that, you know, hospitalization doesn't matter. Yeah, and this is like relatively in line, I think, with another paper you covered a few months ago from the Northern California Kaiser Group, where they were looking at the 72-hour stress rate yep. for these patients that showed the, you know, the people in the highest tertile. Yes. Oh, yes. To use a term that I know so many people out there like. Tertile. Hate. They, they hate you indirectly because of that now. <laughs> third, even... the highest third, you know, they didn't have any better outcomes. And right. same, they had yeah. some more procedures and stuff yeah. like a hint towards harm. So it seems like these papers are all kind of painting the same picture. I feel like over the last five years, there's been a number of these studies that have all pointed in the same direction, that you don't get anything for, you know, these marginal cases. Now, defining the marginal case is the hard part. You know, which ones really should be admitted because nobody's done the send them all home or admit them all. It's always on that margin. And so there's still, you know, some judgment things that go in there and, you know, and saying and trying to figure this out. But overall, I think that we're seeing this push of don't admit them to the hospital. It's expensive. They end up doing stuff that ends up, you know, potentially harming people and sending them home is just as good. Now, some will say, and I do think it's important that this is the Kaiser system, right? So sending someone home into a Kaiser system where you can communicate with the PMD and they yeah, have- It's different embedded, than a county. It's, yeah, they have embedded you know, access to care is different. You know, so there they're saying, go home and get your evaluation, your risk factor modification in a few days. In other systems, that might be weeks or months. And then you know, we just don't know. This data doesn't apply to that. Edit this commentary. This observational analysis of chest pain patients without MI in the ED showed that on the margin, patients admitted to the hospital had no better outcomes than those who were discharged directly with a small hint of harm. These findings cannot be generalized to mean that no patient should be admitted for chest pain evaluation once they've ruled out in the ED. Abstract number five, pre and apneic high flow oxygenation for RSI in the ED. The pre-air rate trial, a multi-center randomized controlled trial. This is by Chua et al. from the Annals of the Academy of Medicine, Singapore. 
Yeah. But what? You're looking at it. You're reading it like this is an unusual well, journal. And I'll tell you, I, this is one of my faves. Here's what I'm saying. As I went through this paper, this is actually a really good paper. Like this, in my mind, this is like an annals of emergency medicine caliber study. Come I'm just surprised. World. Right. To see. No, I'm surprised to see I, it in this, uh, this uh, journal. So this is a good one. So pay attention. At least it, the way it's done. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in good randomized controlled trials. So when intubating a critically ill patient, safe apnea time may be shorter than expected, and any strategy that can prolong the time to hypoxia is worth considering and probably doing, right? The newest one is Apox, which is delivered traditionally via nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute. I think it's become relatively common in the emergency department, and largely observational data has shown decreased desaturation events when using Apox. The authors of this paper are basically saying that if 15 liters is good, maybe 60 liters is even better. Oh, I see. Is mo better. That's right. So this is the pre and apneic high flow oxygenation for rapid sequence intubation in the emergency department, the pre-air rate study, an open label randomized controlled trial enrolling adult patients who required RSI from two emergency departments in Singapore and randomizing them one-to-one to either high-flow nasal cannula at 60 liters per minute or nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute for both the pre-oxygenation and apox stages of the intubation. The pre-oxygenation period was standardized at three minutes, and then RSI meds were pushed. Over about a year, they enrolled and randomized almost 200 patients. That's a lot of patients to do an airway RCT. That's what I'm saying. A mean age of 61 years and the primary reason for intubation was intracranial bleed followed by infection and shock. The groups appear relatively balanced at baseline for relevant characteristics like comorbidities, difficult airway characteristics, use of VL versus DL, and reason for intubation. They don't give vital signs of the groups before they were intubated or oxygenation saturations, but they just don't do it. The incidence of hypoxia, which they defined as an O2 sat below 90%, was observed in 15.5% of the high flow group versus 22.6% of the control group. So a 7% absolute difference, but not a statistically significant number. Other outcomes of interest, including time to intubation, Number of attempts and eventual successful intubation rates were essentially the same between groups, as were adverse events, including pneumonia and aspiration, among others. They did some post-hoc analyses looking at different small cohorts within the overall sample and suggest that high-flow nasal cannula might be better in some circumstances, but these are really small numbers and is probably hypothesis-generating best. Right. So you're talking about patients who have hypoxemia going in or close or marginal hypoxemia. So they, they didn't do that. Co- like I said, they didn't give that particular mm. thing, but they did some little cohorts Because in the studies of like apox that. versus no apox, forget the high flow stuff. Generally speaking, it's pretty a pretty marginal effect because most people you know, aren't really at very high risk for severe yeah. desaturations. But I think when you take those people who are at high risk, does it- That's, yeah. that's really the question yeah. that's left here. Yeah. But this is the first randomized trial that I'm aware of, I don't think you've ever heard of one, Mike, conducted in a real-world setting in the emergency department, no less, right? A lot of these are like, 
They include some ICU patients and stuff like that. This is all in the ED comparing high-flow nasal cannula with traditional nasal cannula in 200 people. Like, this is like an annals caliber. If they had found something big, you know, this could, be, did. I mean, this could be like a New England Journal of Medicine paper. Yeah. You know, it's I'm very surprised to see. I mean, but it's that's, open label, and maybe there's some concerns about maybe, that. Maybe, but, but this... I mean, it has to be open label. You can't conceal. But this, but this speaks to sort of, I think... The quality of the search strategy to our because I don't think we would have found this in a traditional sort of you know looking for our papers. You mean looking through my stack of magazines at home, through the academic archives of Academy of Medicine, Singapore. Singapore. I mean, again, I get the one from Malaysia. So Singapore. So there are some things to think about here, right? I mean, it's a pretty good RCT, but it was a non-consecutive sample. So it's unclear what kind of bias this may have introduced, and it was non-blinded, like you said. And then the important thing, which you alluded to already, was it included patients needing RSI for any indication because of the time required to randomize, get consent, things like that. They just couldn't do the patients in extremis, right? Or the people who might have physiologic reasons making them hard to pre-oxygenate or have real risk for rapid deterioration, which is, like you said, the benefit of APOX in the first place. So I see this thing as something a lot of people are going to take interest in and be like, Okay, you know, you know if fifteen see- is good, maybe sixty is better. Yeah, that that makes more oxygen less it's, problems. It's, it's it's you know four times better. <laughs> I'm I'm listening to this message. You know, it's interesting. I'm trying to think now with COVID because we had tons of people that were on COVID, and they we put them all on high flow, and then some of them needed to be intubated. And I guess we left the high flow going during when we. I, I'm like honestly. I I'm I'm struggling to remember. Yeah, I don't we know. Did if we that. did. I think we. I actually don't think we did. I think in general we put them on 15 liters and a non rebreather prior to their intubation. But I bet there's some places out there that, that have doing some, this and that have some natural experiments with patients exactly that we're talking about who are very high risk for you know desatting immediately. So you know if you got yourself a cool little EHR and you were get you know you have some variation in how things were being practiced then you might have yourself a little study observational editor's commentary in this large and well conducted randomized control trial from Singapore the authors found no significant difference in desaturation rates between high flow nasal cannula and traditional nasal cannula when used for preoxygenation and apox for ED-based RSI. The idea is a very interesting one, and I would like to see high-flow nasal cannula tested in a population that might be at risk for desaturation, where the potential upside is greater, and I might even consider using high-flow nasal cannula in a patient that I'm having a tough time pre-oxygenating for whatever reason. Quick take. Abstract number six, and this is a quick take, it's positive signs on physical exam are not always indications for endotracheal intubation in patients with facial burn. This is by Huang et al., and it's in BMC Emergency Medicine. Now, we have pretty conservative guidelines that suggest considering intubation for facial burns if there are singed nasal hairs, soot in the mouth, etc. And of course, if there's, you know, sort of hoarseness, strider, or shortness of breath. We need to intubate patients with suspected inhalational injuries relatively early to avoid severe upper airway edema that might complicate later airway management. But some burn victims who are intubated for suspected upper airway edema based on singed nasal hairs are later proved not to have inhalational injuries 
And then you get a complaint from the burn service about overly aggressive ER docs doing this stuff and, you know, exposing people to additional morbidity like ventilator-associated pneumonia, et cetera. The authors here look at their experience at a single center in Taiwan from 2013 to 2016 because this has really not been studied very extensively at all in a quantitative manner. They identified 335 patients with facial burns, of whom 121 were intubated in the ED. Of those 335 with facial burns, 73 were found to have inhalation injury on bronchoscopy. They then look at the features of those who had inhalation injury and perform univariate and multivariate regressions, well, univariate analysis and multivariate regressions to identify those features that are more suggestive of inhalation injury. The methods, just for the record, not strong. This, you know, this is a chart review with no, no explicit methods, essentially. Many variables were predictive in the univariate analysis, including singed nasal hair, hoarseness, shortness of breath, positive chest X-ray, smoke exposure, etc. But each of these was problematic because most people, regardless of the finding, did not have inhalational injury. As an example, of the patients that had documented singed nasal hair, there were 78 patients that had documented singed nasal hair. Only 29 of them had inhalational injury. So that's 37%. That's more, a higher proportion than those who didn't have singed nasal hair. But still, if the patient had singed nasal hair and you were a betting man or woman, you would bet that they didn't have inhalational injury. Basically, only patients with shortness of breath or hoarseness had a better than 50% chance of inhalational injury. On multivariate analysis, the only thing that remained an independent predictor of an inhalational injury was shortness of breath. But shortness of breath was only present in 22% of cases. So it's rare. If you see it, it's highly predictive, but it's a pretty rare uh, finding. For what it's worth, when the patients were intubated in the ED, and remember I said that about 120 of them were intubated in the ED, 60% had inhalational injuries. Now, 40% didn't, but I don't think that's that bad. If you, know, if you have to intubate one extra person to save one severe airway problem, I think that's pretty good. So somehow, clinically, we're able to integrate all these findings and not be, we're sensitive, but we're not crazy sensitive. Yeah, and I think that you, know, you have to take this in the context of where the patient is going too, right? Absolutely. If they're going upstairs, it's very different than if they're being transferred, in which case I'll take that 30% rate, yeah. 20% rate, yeah. no problem to have them close off an airway en route to eliminate yeah. that possibility. So probably the calculus changes based on where they're headed. Of course, and I think that's a great point. You know, And I, I do remember Marshall Morgan, he would always complain about these people intubating too aggressively because he used to run one of these aero transport things. And he would say, you know, I'd go pick up all these burn patients and we'd transfer them over on uh, uh, via helicopter to UCLA. And then they would, you know, say, oh, there's nothing there and extubate them. But as a doctor in that other environment where you're like, I'm going to send this guy on a helicopter for 30 minutes, they're not going to be able to hear. Have you ever tried to listen to anybody in a hel helicopter or airplane? You can't hear anything. So yeah, I agree. I think that we do a pretty good job. And this mostly affirms that we're not overly sensitive. We're not intubating. And 99% of the patients that we're intubating don't have anything. You know, most of them did have something. So I think we're doing a pretty good job. Of course, I'd like to see you know, the study that says in patients with isolated singed nasal hair, it otherwise seems well. You know, some, the grill blew up and it burned their eyebrows and it burned their nose, or maybe even they got a little soot in their mouth. 
because they were in a house fire or something like that, but they're otherwise fine. What's the risk of inhalational injury in that? I would love to see that paper. I would love it, but they don't do that analysis here. Editor's commentary. This retrospective study of patients with facial burns shows that multiple features, including singed nasal hair, is associated with inhalational injury. However, only shortness of breath was found to be independently associated with this injury on multivariate analysis. Ultimately, this paper just highlights that a substantial minority of patients with facial burn have inhalational injury, but stop short of delivering good evidence as to which are not likely to have inhalational injury and therefore should not have an early or immediate airway intervention. Abstract number seven. COVID-19-associated croup in children. This is by Brewster et al. from Pediatrics. So as SARS-CoV-2 evolves and new variants continue to emerge, it's not just the names of the variants that are changing, but really everything about them, from transmissibility to populations affected and to clinical manifestations of that particular variant. For pediatric populations specifically, early in the pandemic, it seemed like lower respiratory infections were much more common. But anecdotally, at this point, a croup-like illness of the upper airways seems to have become more predominant. But is this due to SARS-CoV-2 itself or co-infection or is this just something in my head? What's going on here? Now, caused by viral-induced subglottic airway inflammation, croup is classically characterized by sudden-onset barking cough, inspiratory strider, and respiratory distress. So in this research brief, the authors perform a retrospective study to describe the incidence and clinical characteristics of croup associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection from a children's hospital in Boston. They have clinical data from the ED and inpatient wards on patients with laboratory-proven COVID-19 and an ICD-10 diagnosis for laryngeotracheitis from March 1st, 2020 to January 15th, 2022. And they define the Omicron period as starting on December 4th, 2021, which is when they identified their first case. They are locally in Boston. In the study period, there were 75 kids diagnosed with COVID and croup. And the vast majority of them, 81%, were seen in the Omicron period. All kids who were tested for other viruses were negative, except for one kid who was co-infected with rhinovirus. Dexamethasone was given 97% of the time. Only 25% of discharged patients got racemic epi compared with 100% of hospitalized patients. No patients got invasive ventilation or died. The most interesting and informative piece of this paper is actually their figure one, which is the Incidence of COVID-19-associated croup basically plotted out weekly over the course of this study period, and for the most part, it looks flat, with like an occasional blip, a single case here and there, for a year and a half. And then right in December 2020, we see a massive spike upwards of COVID. So even though we were seeing spikes of COVID during that phase. There's lots of COVID happening in Boston and stuff That's like right. that. There wasn't a correlating spike of croup until the Omicron. That's spike. exactly right. Okay. This is the first documentation that croup cases are much higher in kids who get Omicron than it was for previous variants and spikes. And although it can't be proven that COVID-19 was in fact the cause, 
as not all kids got a full respiratory panel, but more than half got flu testing and RSV testing, which was negative in all cases. But their data certainly suggests that it was not co-infection that caused the croup. I think that it's important to know the clinical presentation of the current predominating virus type, as this might impact your testing strategies for COVID, your testing strategies for other viruses, and your surveillance and isolation decisions and recommendations. Edit this commentary. In this retrospective analysis from a single center in Boston, the authors observed a much higher incidence of croup among COVID-19 infected kids with Omicron than with any other variant in the pandemic, and they suggest but cannot prove that this is due to the virus itself and not co-infection. Anecdotally, I think most of us can agree with this finding, but it is really good to see it in print. Also, this is a valuable reminder that this virus will continue to change and we need to know what the current variant looks like to guide our screening and testing strategies and to be on the lookout for new patterns of illness that may represent a new variant. Abstract number eight, tunneled peritoneal catheter versus repeated paracentesis for recurrent ascites, a cost-effective analysis. This is by Wu et al. And it's in the journal titled Cardiovascular and Interventional Radiology. This is a weird study, but okay. LACUSC is a world center of despair in many domains, right? Our consult times, turnaround times, nursing shortages, it's all bad. But we're a major center of excellence for some things. And one of those things is decompensated cirrhosis. I mean, we must be in the top half dozen institutions on earth for decompensated cirrhosis. Well, we do a half dozen taps every single shift. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. So when I saw an article discussing something that I've never seen, a tunneled peritoneal catheter to manage large volume ascites, I'm like, I'm, I'm paying attention. I need to learn about this. I need this. to understand this. Why do not all of these people that I see on multiple times a week have these things? So these authors note that recurrent ascites is a frequent complication of liver cirrhosis and that large volume paracentesis is a strategy to deal with it. Of course, it's super annoying because it takes a long time and some patients may require this more than once a week. A TIPS procedure is usually what people do when they've had medication refractory ascites, but this is contraindicated in patients who've had a history of hepatic encephalopathy, for example, and there are other issues related to TIPS procedures that make them sometimes unattainable. Enter the tunneled catheter. This has been deployed to drain malignant ascites in the past, but it's generally not used for cirrhotic ascites because the risk of infection is thought to be too high and, importantly, the patients live too long. So when you have malignant ascites and you're end stage, you know, you roll the dice, but people can hang on with decompensated cirrhosis for quite a while. These authors from UCSF, Stanford, and North Carolina describe 100 consecutive patients with medication refractory ascites who were initially managed with large-volume paracentesis, but then converted over to tunneled catheter placement. So these were not patients with malignant ascites. So I'm gonna, they actually mostly were. I'll talk about mm. that in a sec. But they did have cirrhotics as well. So that's, that's where there's some innovation here. They follow the patients out over time and assess them for complications and symptom control, and then ultimately throw some dollar signs onto that, which I'm not that interested in, but that's what they do. 
Of the 100 patients, going back to your question, 73 actually had malignant ascites, whereas 27 had cirrhotic ascites. This is the big problem with this study right here, is that the patients just weren't followed very long. Okay, On average, they were followed for about three or four weeks in the large volume paracentesis phase, and similarly, three or four weeks in the tunneled catheter phase. And remember, each person had both. And they really don't explain why. Like, did they die? Or did they just, you know, feel so good that they just left the tertiary referral center and went back to their like regular PMD to drain off these things? That's a, a real issue. But nonetheless, among the 100 patients, 17 adverse events occurred during the large volume paracentesis phase and nine in the tunneled catheter phase. The leakage rate, so that's one thing that people worry about. Well, you put this catheter in, they're going to leak all over the place. It was similar at 5% between the two modalities. So both of them had about you know relatively small leakage rate. The rate of cellulitis, which you would think would be much higher in the tunneled catheter phase, was actually pretty similar. It was rare. It was a 3% in the tunneled phase, 1% in the large volume paracentesis phase. So statistically not significant maybe a little bit of a signal, but not 20% developing cellulitis or something like that. Importantly, the rate of SBP was way lower in the tunneled phase versus the large volume phase. And I think this is a little bit surprising. I think you'd think, oh, you've got this catheter in there, bacteria is going to crawl up into the, through there and then infect that fluid, which is this you know sort of perfect petri dish kind of brothy fluid for growing bacteria. But I think the, the argument is that, but you drain that fluid all the time. It doesn't sit there. So even if bacteria gets in there, the patient drains it out that night. And so there's not much that stays and can cause spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, unlike the large volume paracentesis where you get the translocation and it sits there for you know, days or whatever. You know, that was going to be my question I was going to say for the end, but it seems like a good place to ask it, mm -hmm. which was just sort of the operationalizing of this tunnel catheter. Like, so that is that... Do they drain it every night themselves? They don't have to come into the ED. They don't have to, like, it's not like you need to have some special tool to, you know, to do it. Or... The truth is, we see these all the time. This is what dialysis patients get with peritoneal dialysis. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So although it sounds like this, my mind was blown when I read it. As I, and I read a bunch of other articles about this to see how crazy these people were for doing it. And the truth is, this was only described in like 1989. That's like the first time someone was like, hey, well, we put a catheter in there. I mean, that seems mind-boggling to me. And then it was sort of rapidly fell out of favor. And now there's been like four or five small studies that look at it. And basically, if you think of it like a dialysis catheter, I think it's a little bit easier and less jarring to think about. And yes, the patients manage it at home. They did not get into individual level detail of like, how do you do it? What do you dump the fluid into? And all that kind of stuff, which of course you'd want to know. And how do you clean it? And all, all of those kinds of things. But it was there. They finally do some stuff with the cost-effective analysis. Oh, they also noted that the patients in the tunneled catheter phase had much fewer or many fewer ED visits and hospital days associated with, which is, you know, sort of self-evident, honestly. And then finally, they do some money and say it's a lot cheaper to do the tunneled catheter thing, and, that, and that's fine. So this is really borderline science, right? It's retrospective. It's single site. The lead-in and follow-up periods are really, really short. So you know, I don't think we can you know, start advocating this like right away, but it sure is an interesting idea, and it's a really difficult population to treat. In emergency medicine, you're not going to be placing these. These are going to be done by 
IR or surgery or maybe GI or oncology even, but it's something to think of. Oh, and I should say one thing. Although the majority of the patients had a malignant ascites, they did a little sub out and you know we're talking about small numbers, but they didn't see any particular glaring differences between the rates of complications and whatnot between those who had malignant versus cirrhotic ascites. So this is obviously just something that we're putting out there. It's kind of avant-garde. I just thought it was cool. I'd never seen it. Editor's commentary. This is a small retrospective study that showed tunneled peritoneal catheter placement was associated with lower overall costs than repeated large-volume paracentesis for patients with medication refractory ascites. The data is extremely preliminary, but may offer a strategy for this very difficult-to-treat patient population. Abstract number nine. Non-inferiority of intranasal ketamine compared to IV morphine for musculoskeletal pain relief among older adults in an emergency department, a randomized controlled trial, this by Tang Bua et al., from age and aging. The optimal management of pain in the ED is a topic of many research studies and many EMA sections. That's for sure. And special populations often warrant even more thought and study than the ED population as a whole. The authors here are focusing on older adults and designed a study under the supposition that avoiding narcotics whenever possible in this population is a good thing. And Mike recently covered a paper discussing this exact point, very on topic. They conduct a randomized double-blind trial in one academic emergency department in Thailand enrolling a non-consecutive sample of older patients they defined as age greater than or equal to 65 years with acute musculoskeletal pain. They excluded unstable patients and those with a contraindication to ketamine, which was actually a lot. They randomized them to get either 0.3 mg per kg of ketamine intranasal and a 10 ml normal saline placebo. IV, or a normal saline intranasal placebo and 0.1 mg per kg of morphine IV. So everybody got something in the IV and something in the nose. Out of 219 potential patients, 145 were excluded due to instability or contraindication, leaving 74 patients who were consented and randomized, 37 in each group. The mean pain scores are similar at baseline. 8.1 in the ketamine group and 7.6 in the morphine group, and at all time points measured in 15-minute increments, so every 15 minutes it did a pain score all the way up to two hours, the scores were also statistically similar. A couple of examples, at 30 minutes the pain score was 6 in the ketamine group and 5.8 in the morphine group, and 120 minutes it was 3.1 in the ketamine group and 3.5 in the morphine group. As were the delta scores, the delta from you know, what they started with to what they were at in that point. About two at the 30-minute mark, a change, a delta in both groups, and about four or five at the 120-minute mark. Secondary outcomes were need for rescue medication, which was seen in 8.1% of the ketamine group versus 18.9% of the morphine group, and adverse event rate, which they say was very low and similar between the two groups, Dizziness, 13.5% ketamine, 8.1% morphine. Nausea, 2.7% ketamine and 5.4% morphine. But these seem very low to me, way too low for ketamine or morphine when giving it to like a 70-year-old patient. They also don't comment on hallucinations and emergency reactions, even though they do seem to have measured them 
I couldn't find the number anywhere in the papers. It was in the methods, but I didn't really see it anywhere in the results. They conclude that intranasal ketamine is non-inferior to intravenous morphine as the delta pain score and its confidence interval were within the non-inferiority margin of 1.3%. Now, this may be true, but I do have some concerns about this paper. Even though they had a very nice study protocol overall, it's actually relatively well written, there may have been a failure of blinding, as I'm sure that the ketamine patients just looked different in very recognizable ways, with nystagmus, mm-hmm. agitation, emergence reactions. They have done things in other trials like this where they put you know, eye masks on the patient and stuff, try to blind the assessor or the provider, but they didn't do anything. It's just hard to maintain blinding with ketamine studies. It just is. About Three quarters of potentially eligible patients were excluded, largely for ketamine reasons, ketamine relative contraindications, which limits the applicability of this to, you know, patients seen in the ED generally. There also may have been delayed adverse events not seen in the two-hour study period, a bunch of puking when they left the ED or just felt weird. It does all that stuff. We don't know. And then finally... We have no idea how this would impact opioid prescribing, which is sort of what they say up front, like opioid prescribing is a really big problem and future addiction and stuff like that. We don't know what they sent them home with, right? This was just sort of a one-time shot in the ED, and they may still send them all home with Norco. Like, I have no idea. So the study itself was relatively well-conducted. It's an interesting idea for intranasal ketamine. I think we need more safety information really before is, thinking about this yeah. seriously. Yeah. And I think this this is a little bit of a, you know, we often talk about like, where is the data pointing, right? And I feel like over the last couple few years, the ketamine data, particularly with older people, has been pointing against the use of ketamine, that they, you know, it makes them feel really weird, really dizzy. And that's like a big problem for older people in particular. So this is like a, almost like a one-off pointing in the other direction. So I, I'm not saying it's wrong or they did anything, you know, incorrectly, but it just, it doesn't point in the same direction. It doesn't point in the same direction. So I don't think we should, you know, from a Bayesian perspective, probably shouldn't change our approach very much. commentary. In this double-blind randomized control trial from Thailand, the authors report non-inferiority between IV morphine and intranasal ketamine for older adults seen in the ED with acute musculoskeletal pain but the high number of excluded patients, surprisingly low adverse event rate in both groups, and potential for failure of blinding make me feel that we should wait for external validation, primarily for safety reasons, before adopting this therapy that does seem to go against the grain of currently published papers on the topic. Abstract number 10, severe bradycardia from severe hyperkalemia. Patient Characteristics, Outcomes, and Factors Associated with Hemodynamic Support. This is by Drumheller et al., and it's in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So obviously, bradycardia is really concerning, and it often requires urgent treatment. One of the potential causes of bradycardia might be hyperkalemia. And classically, we teach that this would be thought of when someone has bradycardia with PR prolongation, tented T waves, potentially QRS widening, or even a sine wave. The authors here conduct a large retrospective study of a cohort of patients with both hyperkalemia and bradycardia to describe the type of EKG findings that were present at the original presentation. They also describe how these patients were treated. 
It's a single center retrospective review with fairly decent methodology, actually. The key entry criteria were that the patient had to have bradycardia defined, severe bradycardia, actually, defined as a heart rate less than 50, and hyperkalemia defined as a potassium of greater than six milliequivalents per liter at the same time during the ED visit. So had to be within one hour, basically. And the point of having it be severe is they really wanted to make sure that it was causal. Cardiac arrest cases were excluded because the arrest could cause the hyperkalemia and not vice versa. Hemolyzed samples and those collected on blood gas analyzers or point-of-care devices were excluded because those ones will spit out results and you won't know if it's hemolyzed. So they limited the included cases to those for which the hyperkalemia was treated or noted in the medical record to be related to bradycardia. Over a several-year period, this yielded only 87 subjects that had both severe hyperkalemia and severe bradycardia that met those criteria. The mean age was 72, the mean potassium was 7.1, and the mean heart rate was 43. Most of the patients had diabetes. Many to most, about 50%, were on a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker as well, and about 50% were on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, which could potentially increase potassium. 10% were on potassium-sparing diuretics. For the record, the most common chief complaint was altered mental status. There's a lot of analysis in this paper, but I think the key findings that I want to focus on or for our purposes are the following. In terms of the initial EKG, only 27% of them had peak T waves. So that's a minority finding. 30% had prolonged QRS, but still only 30%. The most common rhythm was junctional bradycardia. So narrow complex bradycardia, no P waves. And that occurred only in 31% of the patients. Sinus bradycardia was the second most common thing. And the next one after that was first degree AV block. The study is truly limited in what it can tell us. The methods are a bit spotty and there are some significant questions about like things like the definition of a tinted T wave, which they don't really go into. They just say, we assessed it. But fundamentally, the main problem is they start with hyperkalemia and bradycardia, but as clinicians, we start with bradycardia not knowing the potassium. I think it would have been really interesting to see how many patients with severe bradycardia actually had hyperkalemia as the causal agent, especially among those without obvious EKG findings of hyperkalemia, but that just wasn't done. Still, I think this study does offer us a little nugget. It reminds us not to get lulled into this idea that people should have tented T waves or widen QRS findings before they slow down. There was a lot of severe slowing that occurred without any of these sort of more early findings, if you will. Edit this commentary. This retrospective analysis of patients with hyperkalemia-induced bradycardia refutes the commonly held belief that hyperkalemia causes bradycardia through an orderly progression going from tented T waves to PR prolongation, to QRS widening before the severe bradycardia develops. These findings suggest that sinus or junctional bradycardia without QRS widening or tented T waves are the most common ECG patterns. Quick take. Abstract number 11. Dexamethasone versus prednisone in children hospitalized with asthma exacerbation. This by Hofgen et al. from Hospital Pediatrics. This is a quick take. So I recently covered a retrospective cohort study that concluded dexamethasone use resulted in better outcomes compared to prednisone among hospitalized kids with asthma 
but issues with cohort definitions, baseline differences between the groups, and exclusion of patients who crossed over to the other medication made me seriously doubt the validity of their findings. These authors from St. Louis conduct a much more robust retrospective cohort study using a covariate balance propensity score matching strategy to account for baseline differences and physician discretion that may have influenced steroid selection. The primary analysis was conducted dividing patients based on first steroid received, dexamethasone or prednisone, prednisolone, and then they performed a second analysis restricting the sample to patients who received only one or the other for their entire ED and hospital course. Among over 1,100 included patients, 44% of which received dexamethasone first and 56% received prednisone first, in the covariate balanced cohort, the authors did not observe a difference in their primary outcome of 30-day return utilization, which was 3.9% in the dexamethasone group and 2.2% in the prednisone group, or in any of the secondary outcomes, including index hospital length of stay, need for PICU-level care. Also, no differences between the groups in the secondary analysis that restricted the sample to patients who only got one type of steroid or another for the duration of their stay. Although this is a much more nuanced study, there are some limitations, including its single-center nature, the potential for missing return visits to another emergency department, and the possibility that they missed an important confounder in their propensity score methodology. But basically, they're saying either one, it's all okay. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cohort study using a propensity score methodology, the authors found no significant differences in any outcomes between dexamethasone and prednisone for children hospitalized with asthma. It's still not a trial, but does represent the best evidence on the topic to date. Both are safe and effective. Abstract number 12, risk of malignancy following emergency department Bell's palsy diagnosis in children. This is by Walsh et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And, you know, this is somewhat of a follow-up study to one that we covered from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, turn blanking on the time, certainly within the last two years. Basically, the setup is that Bell's palsy happens in children. Personally, I haven't seen a lot of cases, but the authors assert that it's pretty common and they give some epidemiologic evidence that suggests it's not a rare diagnosis in kids. In organizing an RCT to determine whether steroids were beneficial for children with Bell's palsy, a previous author group noted that about 1% of the kids that were enrolled, right, that were going to get steroids, were diagnosed with an acute cancer shortly thereafter, often leukemia. And that's the paper that you covered that year or two ago. That's right. And the Bell's was a sentinel event. The little tumor cells were attacking facial nerves. This is important because delays to diagnosis are potentially bad, but more importantly, because if you're going to use steroids, that can induce tumor lysis if you're talking about lymphomas and leukemias and stuff like that. And that's, that could be deadly. And I think in the previous study, they actually showed that that happened in like one or two cases. Anyway, so that's the idea. Typically, no diagnostic testing is recommended for kids or anybody with a Bell's diagnosis, with the possible exception of Lyme testing if you live in a place that has um, endemic Lyme disease. So these authors look to validate the findings that were observed in that other study using a large clinical and administrative data set, the Pediatric Health Information System, which is this group of 47 children's hospitals 
that share data and aggregate their data for research purposes. And we've had many studies over the years that have used the pediatric health information system to produce research papers. The authors identified all the children with a diagnosis of Bell's palsy who were discharged from the ED, and then they followed them through this administrative and clinical data set to determine if a new oncologic diagnosis was made in the two to three months following that initial diagnosis. The primary outcome was the incidence of new malignancy at 60 days. They follow them a little bit longer, but that was their, you know, their one cup time. Over 10 years and across the 47 hospitals, there were just under 19,000 ED encounters for Bell's palsy in children, which I have no idea if that sounds like a lot to you. It sounded like a lot to me. So mean age was about 11, okay? And of that 19,000, 41 or 0.33% had a new oncologic diagnosis within 60 days. The mean age for those kids with the new oncologic diagnosis were just under seven. So they're different. The older kids seem to, you know, I mean, the mean age was 11 and these ones were, you know, six. So that's for whatever it is. For good measure, and I love this about this study, they did look at a control condition of children who presented with cough. And they found that the incidence of new oncologic diagnosis within 60 days of kids who came to the ED and were discharged with cough was 0.03%. So, you know, way, way lower. The incidence of new oncologic diagnosis actually rises a little bit more over that third month so that at the end of three months, it's just about 0.4% of kids with a Bell's diagnosis have a new oncologic diagnosis. And remember, this is not to mention the kids who may have had that new oncologic diagnosis in a different hospital, right? Granted, these are children's hospitals, so probably they end up getting referred back there, but you never know. So, you know, that's probably a low-end estimate. What's scarier, and this is kind of crazy, but 300 kids were diagnosed with a new oncologic malignancy at the time of their Bell's diagnosis. That's 2%. So 2% of kids, 2.5% of kids ultimately have new oncologic diagnosis when they show up with Bell's palsy, you know, for the first time. Some of those apparently were obvious and they were admitted right away, but, you know, some weren't. For what it's worth, the most commonly diagnosed cancer was a CNS neoplasm. Probably not surprising. It's, you know, in there and it's grabbing onto some nerves. There's also a host of leukemia cases and lymphoma cases. Now, this is less than that 1% rate that the previous study showed, but it's certainly not trivial. And now, frankly, on the basis of these two studies, I'm buying it. Bell's palsy can be a sentinel event. It's not a common sentinel event, but it clearly can be. And so if I see a kid with Bell's palsy, I'm probably getting a CBC. And I'm certainly telling them that they have to follow up with their PMD to sort of monitor the situation over the next couple of months, particularly if I'm planning on treating them with steroids, which by the way, we don't have evidence for whether <laughs> those kids should be treated with steroids or not. Well, I guess that is the more nuanced question, right? Throw on a CBC, I don't care. You yeah. tell me to do it, I'm going to do it. So you're saying no steroids either. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is no evidence. So we have evidence. Well, what are you doing? I'm, do I'm giving steroids. Okay. For a kid with Bell's, I'm giving steroids. And I'm, I'll check their CBC. I get recognized that that's like, a, you know, to CBC to diagnose a CNS, lympho CNS yeah. tumor is pretty low, low yield. But, you know, I just want to make sure the white count's not 20 million so that I might accidentally induce tumor lysis in a disease that I know you can cause tumor lysis in when you give them steroids, which is most likely going to be the acute leukemia. Yeah, the right? hematologic. The hematologic stuff. 
So, and then I'm going to just refer the kid back to their, their PMD. I'm going to say, you know, it's really unlikely, but like, let's keep an eye on it, et cetera. I'm just not giving the same kind of return precautions I give and the same kind of instructions I give to your average adult with Bells, which is, there's nothing. I mean, it's nothing of importance, not a stroke. You absolutely don't need to worry about it. That's, that's my usual sort of instructions for people, adult patients with Bells. It's going to take a long time to recover, et cetera. And kids, I'm giving it a little different on the basis of this. Editor's commentary. This study affirms that Bell's palsy is associated with an increased risk of new malignancy in children. If treating such a case, be careful to screen for other findings and consider additional testing and follow-up, particularly if you're considering adding steroids to the treatment plan for their Bell's palsy. Abstract number 13. Naloxone and Bute prescribing following U.S. Emergency Department visits for suspected opioid overdose August 2019 to April 2021. This is by Chua et al. from Annals, the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So among patients with non-fatal ED visits for opioid overdose, an estimated 5.5% will die within a year. There are two medications out there we can prescribe with potential to impact this mortality. One is naloxone, which can reverse an overdose, be given by somebody else if they happen to be there to reverse the overdose. And two is bup, which can treat the actual opioid use disorder. But are we prescribing these? The goal of this study was twofold. To look at trends in ED visits for opioid overdose during the COVID-19 pandemic and to evaluate post-overdose prescribing rates. So this is a retrospective cohort analysis of pharmacy and medical claims from Symphony Health's integrated dataverse, which captures data from 93% of dispensed U.S. prescriptions from over 70,000 pharmacies and data from 5,800 hospitals and about one-third of U.S. emergency departments. So of 70 million ED visits between August 2019 and April 2021, about 150,000 or 0.2% were for opioid overdose. The mean weekly visits for opioid overdose increased by 23.6% between April 2020 and October 2020, which was sort of the meat of the pandemic. It's incredible that the mean rate increased not the proportion but the actual rate increased when you know the The overall population the number of ed visits halved you know in general during that time that's right and then they declined back down to pre-pandemic levels by march of 2021 now although there's only one more month of data here april 2021 before the study period ended there was a little bit of a rise. It seemed like it was back on the upswing again, but you know we only have one month to look at there. So in terms of naloxone, 7.4% had a prescription for naloxone within 30 days of the overdose visit, and 6.4% had a dispensed prescription. Prescription rates increased very modestly over the study period, but not by a lot. Bupe, had a prescription for bup within 30 days of the overdose visit, and 8.2% had a dispensed prescription. The prescription rates here did not change at all over the study period. To contextualize the magnitude of the deficit, right, we're giving like, you know, 6-8% of these people life-saving medication, the authors also calculate the rates of epinephrine prescribing 
for anaphylaxis, which they're like, one's a life-saving medication, the other one's a potentially life-saving medication. One kills however many tens of thousands of people a year, the other one kills nobody, or very, very few. (laughs) And they found this rate to be about 50%. Yeah. So they conduct secondary and sensitivity analyses, isolating the sample to patients who had not had a previous prescription in the prior 90 days before their non-fatal overdose, isolating the sample to first-time overdoses only, and isolating prescribing to ED physicians. And the findings were largely unchanged in each of these analyses. This is incredibly disappointing. Some limitations here include that the database underrepresents visits by uninsured patients there's no way to know if the index visit was a fatal overdose, right? They said it was not fatal, but it's possible it was fatal. They could not look at differences in prescribing rates by race and ethnicity, and it's possible that we have implemented a lot of take-home naloxone programs that, so, you know, you wouldn't actually write a prescription because you just hand them some naloxone, but these are pretty new. Yeah, and that's not. It's that's... pretty new and very, very uncommon. So I think, like Mike said, this is disappointing. We can all agree that we should do better. We can do better. Well, and we know based on stuff by a variety of really good research groups that the risk of death for people who've had a non-fatal overdose within the next couple of weeks is a couple of percent. Yeah, I think that's a really outstanding point that emphasizes that, you know, what Mel always says, what we do yeah. matters, right? Like this is not something you can kick the can down the road and let somebody else deal with. That impact is immediate mm-hmm. and profound. And I think this leaves the question, which maybe will get answered in abstract number four. Gene, how, I did wanna, how can we do it? I do want to say one other thing about this too. Uh, I will, I will in the next abstract is, is related. But the other piece of this that I think that I, I, I often forget is that people who have opioid or non-fatal opioid overdoses hang out with people who have non-fatal opioid overdoses commonly. And so, you know, there's the element of you're your, your giving it to that person. And sometimes people think, well, what difference does it make for them? If you have a fatal over, you can't auto-inject. But you're really introducing this into a community of people who are at high risk. And it's just one of those things that like, and I love the EpiPen auto-injector analogy because I've never really, I've actually never heard that specifically stated. So that's a pretty cool one. And yeah, we have a general theory that like having more of this stuff in the community is good, particularly if you can get it into the community that's at risk. And it's not like people who have peanut allergies hang out with other people who have peanut allergies, but in the opioid space, that's exactly what happens. So you really get a double benefit for doing this and yet we're 10 times less in that population. You know, yeah, 10 I think times maybe another way of saying that is, you know, if you give somebody uh, naloxone, it may save somebody else's Absolutely. life, yeah, you yeah. Know, which is a really cool, that's a good way of thinking about it, and it's important. Now, Mike, tell us how to do it. Okay. Edit this commentary. In this massive nationwide retrospective study, the authors found that only 1 in 13 patients received a prescription for naloxone, and only 1 in 12 received a prescription for buprenorphine after an ED visit for opioid overdose. This is a missed opportunity to save a life, and we can do better. Abstract number 14, sustained implementation of a multi-component strategy to increase emergency department-initiated interventions for opioid use disorder. This is by Lowenstein et al. And again, this is in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is a really good article 
describing the theoretic underpinnings of multimodal and multidisciplinary strategy to increase attention to and treatment of patients presenting with an opioid-related ED visit. In short, buprenorphine and co-located opioid counseling is good. But ED providers are busy and have short memories. Thus, it's been hard to get ED docs as a community to take up buprenorphine prescribing with gusto. And that's even true of naloxone, as Sanjay just showed in the previous abstract. The authors here from the University of Pennsylvania Health System in Philadelphia designed a series of interventions to increase the adoption of bup and naloxone prescribing, and importantly, to maintain these increases over time. Often we see interventions that have a quick-hitting effect, but when you know, other shinier objects appear, the effect fades away to nil. The description of the development of the intervention here is a must-read for anyone interested in this type of complex group behavior change. Really, I'm being serious. But for our purposes, I mean, it goes through all sorts of theoretical stuff. Facts, Sanjay. I have this in my notes, but they cite the FOG model. The beha- yeah, BJ Fogg. BJ Fogg. BJ Fogg. Yeah, remember we, that guy? We went to a conference hosted <laughs> yeah, by him up yeah, in to Stanford do, yeah, many to, years well, ago. doing mobile health stuff because he was kind of a mobile health kind of guru. And they talk about that, how you, know, you have to be motivated. Yeah, the whole behavior change, the BJ Fogg model. Yeah, so they talk about that among many other models. So it's really actually a great primer if you're interested in that kind of stuff. And it's very well written, so I, I do it. But for our purposes, let's just say they involved a lot of people tried a bunch of pilot interventions, and settled on three key sort of components to their overall intervention. The first one is they paid people to get x wavered. okay? They don't say how much they paid them, but they gave them a financial incentive to get properly licensed to prescribe buprenorphine. This increased the percent of their physicians that were x wavered from 6% to? 26%. 90% in how many weeks? A week. Six weeks. <laughs> so you want doctors to do something, just pay them to do it. It's pretty straightforward calculus. The economists who are listening are like, you guys are morons. Of we, course, that's what you do. Yeah, but yeah. like you said, it depends how much you pay them. And then, of course, will they actually use it? Right. So do right, it. Right, of course. So. But you got you to gotta have that. And they, they actually go through that. It's like, like an ability barrier that they called. You know, you can't do it until you have that. Next they implemented a peer recovery program. And basically, these are peer counselors who could help the patients navigate the post-discharge system. I think the idea here is that once a patient sees you know, real evidence that someone cares about them in real time and sort of tells them that you can do this and they're a peer, that that makes them more willing to try buprenorphine. They might even ask then the provider, like, hey, is there any medication you can help? I want to quit, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the way they did this was really cool too. Their EHR had an algorithm running in the background for determining whether an ED visit might be opioid related. And I won't go into the details, but it was looking at that or if the patient was likely to have or had a known history of opioid use disorder. And if the EHR algorithm flagged that, it would not just send it to the doctor. It would send this information to these peer counselors, right? In real time, and then they could go, oh, I'm getting a flag for whatever reason. Check the computer to see, is it a, you know overly sensitive flag or an underly sensitive flag or whatever, and then decide whether they wanted to go talk to the patient or not. And this was all happening in the background, which I love. Basically an auto consult type of situation because you ask doctors to do this when they're busy, you know, 
trying to make sure you don't stop breathing, it ends up being too much very often. So that was great. The third basic intervention was public praising wearable reminders like pins and encouragement for providers. But importantly, they didn't give like feedback to specific feedback to the, the, the old audit and feedback stuff and post lists of who did a good job or what they thought was a good job or bad job. Okay. So did it work? It seems to have worked. In the pre-intervention phase, there were a total of 1,300 opioid-related visits during a, a couple-year period at these health systems, of which 3% got opioid medications, mostly naloxone. In the post-phase, there were 1,300 opioid-related visits, and 23% received medications. So that's you know a big thing. And there's a couple of really important points. First, the increase in medications was driven almost exclusively by BUP. In the pre-phase, it was a little bit of naloxone. Naloxone increased a little bit in the post-phase, but in the pre-phase, 0% or very close to 0% got BUP. In the post-phase, it was 17%. So of that 23, 17 of it was buprenorphine, which, which is great. The other thing is that their time series analysis, so you always worry with these papers, right? That, you know, this study period was 2017 through 2021, 2020, something like that. A lot of stuff was going on vis-a-vis opioid, and there was a general increase in the consciousness of, of opioid-related things. And, you know, is it really their intervention that had it, or was it just generally people doing it? So the time series analysis, and that's in the figures, is really compelling here. Basically, everything's flat until they launch their, their sort of package of interventions. And there's a sudden and very rapid uptick that then continues to rise throughout the study period for that sort of two-year study period thing. So that's great evidence that they did something, that it happened related to their thing, and then they were able to sustain it. And it may be that other temporal things in society helped them sustain it, but it really looks like it was related to when they launched their thing. Interestingly, it was not perfect. Their provider-level analysis shows really uneven uptake. After the intervention, some providers were giving buprenorphine to 40 to 60% of their patients with opioid-related visits, while others stayed at or below 5%. So even though the program's successful, there's a lot of potential room for improvement. For what it's worth, I'll just add this and sort of pause probably. They looked at the total ED length of stay for such patients, and it was unchanged before and after the intervention. And that's important because obviously a lot of people think, oh, this peer counseling and the time to do all these things is going to have these patients hanging out in the ER for many more hours. And that just was not the case. In the pre-phase, it was five hours. In the post-phase, it was five hours. There's a lot more in this paper. It's really good read, like I said. And there are a few limitations that we have to acknowledge, including that time series uh, analysis problem that there might be some contemporaneous temporal trends that, that actually are causing these improvements. It would have been nice, for example, to look at some other hospitals nearby that didn't undergo this suite of interventions to see. But overall, I think this is encouraging information that we can do this. It's a big effort, you know, peer counseling, EHR modifications, et cetera. So, you know, not every place is going to be able to do this. They won't have the resources to do it, but at least it shows that there is the potential to do it and that it can work. And now it's about finding out what's the sort of like minimally effective interventions that work and sustain the improvement. And what's really going to motivate the providers and not just get their X waiver, but to actually go ahead and start doing these prescriptions. Editor's Commentary. 
This is an exceptionally well-written manuscript describing the development and effect of interventions designed to increase medicating-related treatment for patients with opioid-related ED visits. The results are not definitive, but certainly strongly suggest that the multimodal approach had an immediate and sustained impact. Abstract number 15. Incidence and Natural History of Pediatric Large Vessel Occlusion Stroke, a population study, this by Bhatia et al. from JAMA Neurology. So although very rare, acute ischemic stroke and large vessel occlusion do occur in kids. Now, due to a combination of things like common stroke mimics and the knowledge that there's basically almost zero atherosclerotic disease in kids, you can imagine there's a delay in diagnosis from the time of presentation. And although stroke management guidelines are relatively clear in adults, whether you agree with them or not, they're clear, the trials on which they were based did not include adolescents or children. This is, for the most part, treatment in an evidence-free or very minimal zone. This is a retrospective cohort study from four centers in New South Wales, Australia, of all pediatric patients with acute ischemic stroke over a 10-year period identified via ICD-10 codes. They had the goals of estimating the incidence of stroke and large vessel occlusion stroke, as well as the proportion of cases that would fulfill adult selection criteria for thrombectomy and describe the outcomes of these patients. The chart review methods are pretty well described and actually pretty well done. They end up presenting data for 164 pediatric admissions for acute ischemic stroke. 35% female and a mean age of 6.1 years, six-year-old kids who had an acute ischemic stroke. The incidence of acute ischemic stroke was 1.02 per 100,000 children per year. And the incidence of pediatric large vessel occlusion stroke, LVO stroke, was 0.24 per 100,000 children per year. That is not common. That is not common at all. LVO stroke was observed in about a quarter of the acute ischemic stroke admissions, and a third of them got thrombectomy. So 10 patients got thrombectomy alone, and three got thrombectomy with lytics of the 39 total that had an LVO occlusion. The remaining two-thirds got conservative therapy. Patients with LVO strokes were older than non-LVO patients a little bit, an average age of 8.2 years versus 5.5 years. Neurologic outcomes were worse among patients with LVO who did not receive thrombectomy as measured by the PEED-MRS, as were overall clinical outcomes at three months at an odds ratio of 3.64. Most of the patients with an LVO occlusion presented in a time window suitable for thrombectomy. About 70% presented within 6 hours and 90% presented within 24 hours. Now, I thought timing might have some impact on thrombectomy, the decision to go to thrombectomy, but they performed a binary logistic regression with multiple potential confounders, including time, and only age emerged as a significant predictor. So the older kids were a little bit more likely to get thrombectomy with an LVO stroke. Now, this is not a trial, okay? That's very (laughs) important to really contextualize the information they're giving us here. And spoiler alert, 
we are never going to get one, right? I mean, they actually have tried to do trials of TPA versus no TPA a couple of times for kids with stroke, and they have all been stopped due to very, are no cases. very yeah. slow enrollment. Yeah. That, yes, but since 2010, actually been trying to do that. So we're never going to see a thrombectomy or not trial for kids with strokes. But this generates the major limitation of interpreting these results, which is selection bias. Right, We just have no clue why some kids were taken to thrombectomy and some were not. Maybe they were less sick. Maybe they were like very stable, not that bad, but they don't give us that clinical data. So we have no idea. They also don't give us trend data over time, right? which I think would have been nice. Like Maybe none of them did for the first five years of study period. Then there was kind of an uptick as we started to feel like this was the way to go in adults, but they just don't give us that. I mean, it's think, such small numbers. You it's know. very small. And thinking like an ED provider, it would have been interesting to see data, because I'm sure they had it, on times to CT or times to diagnosis to sort of shed some light on the issue of potential delay. You know, like maybe when a kid comes in, like doesn't act quite right, we're like, oh, it must be a migraine with some neurology. It must be, a, you know, Todd's paralysis or something. So we didn't even get a CT. For quite some time. I know we're kind of hesitant to CT kids. Sure. I'm sure they have that data. They don't give it. I'm just sort of generally curious yeah, to know I'm if trying this to delay pulse. thing is yeah, real. Yeah, I, I like what you're doing there because I'm trying to pull something out of this. There's a lot of questions that come to mind like, what kind of kid has a stroke? Is it like, you know, for example, I would imagine these kids were sick, like at baseline. Maybe I'm totally wrong about that, but, you know, did yep. they have cancer? Do they have, you know, things so, like that? I'll, I'll tell do they you have this. sickle cell disease? Yeah, Does that they, matter? You know? they, so they don't provide that information in this paper, but I did a lot of reading about it because I don't think I've ever seen a kid with an acute ischemic stroke. They say they see about, you know, one a month, something like that. If you look at these numbers over the whole, you know, the New South Wales area, they're seeing one a month. So I tried to do a little reading about this and there isn't a lot of you know, yes, some of them have cancer, some of them have sickle disease, some have like thrombophilic disorders right. and things like that. But it's not like 90% have no, something. I know. You know? I'm just trying to understand like the ones that go to thrombectomy, is, there, is, that, drive, is, is that the whole thing that's driving it? Someone's having massive sickle cell crisis. For me, you know, for me, I would take the thrombectomy thing out of this. Yeah. I know that that's what the authors are really focused yeah. on, but they're neurologists. For me, the big take home, I know you're sort of trying to pull something out of this, is just a reminder that acute ischemic stroke is real. It does it's not like a, it's not like a unicorn that has never been seen. It's you know it's yeah. pretty rare, but it actually does happen. So it, you know don't if you see a kid that looks like a stroke, particularly a large vessel occlusion, don't spend a lot of time going. But this can't be a stroke. Let me right, think about eighteen other things to work up before I think it could. It can be a stroke actually. So I would treat it as such. And then let a neurologist figure out what to do on the back Yeah, I think end, that's a good point because I'd probably, I mean, we're all, you see a kid is hemiplegic. I mean, scan or not. I mean, you're probably going to scan that kid, right? And then you're going to be like, wait a minute, the scan's negative. You know, I was expecting a brain bleed or trauma or God knows what. And now it's negative. And now you're sitting there going, maybe it's Todd's paralysis. Maybe it's this. Let's do a talk screen. Maybe there's kids malingering. Who knows what yeah. you're thinking. Get a neurologist point. involved. Yeah. If it looks real, for me, that's the take home message because it does happen. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective cohort study from Australia, the authors show that while acute ischemic stroke is very rare in pediatrics, about a quarter of the cases were large vessel occlusion strokes and most presented within a window where thrombolysis 
or thrombectomy would be performed if the patient was an adult. Although the patients who got thrombectomy in this cohort did better, the sample size is very small and cannot be considered anywhere near conclusive due to likely selection bias. For us, as emergency providers, I think this is a reminder that although stroke mimics are common in this age group, kids can get strokes. So, do a workup and call a code neuro when appropriate, and for neurologists, this paper might be used to guide management, particularly when an LVO is discovered. Abstract number 16, comparison of intracranial pressure measurements before and after hypertonic saline or mannitol treatment in children with severe traumatic brain injury. This is by Kochenek et al., and it's in JAMA Network Open. This is an observational study labeled as a comparative effectiveness trial, which is kind of interesting, that compares the effect of mannitol with that of hypertonic saline in children with head trauma and elevated intracranial pressure. This is not an ED study. All of these children were in the ICU and had an intracranial pressure monitor in place. The study was conducted at numerous sites from throughout the world as part of the Approaches and Decisions for Acute Pediatric Traumatic Brain Injury Trial. Children were all less than 18, all had a GCS less than 8 at the time of their intracranial monitor placement. They ultimately, in this big group, had 500 kids that met the criteria. 339 got hypertonic saline, 105 of them got mannitol, and 74 of them got both. Most patients got more than one bolus, if not bolus type. The authors then analyzed the change in intracranial pressure around each bolus that was administered. Okay? So this means that the total number of observations was actually 2,500, because on average, people got about five boluses boluses of one agent or the other. And for the record, the hypertonic saline bolus was only 3% hypertonic saline because you know in the literature, sometimes you see these crazy things like 30% hypertonic. So they excluded all those really wacky ones and stuck with 3%, which I think is what most of us are probably most familiar with. They conducted a stratified analysis and that was stratified based on the intracranial pressure at the time of the bolus. And they used this linear modeling technique that adjusted for age, GCS, some other clinical features, and the fact that individuals were observed repeatedly. So that's a pretty reasonable methodologic approach. Overall, the mean age was seven years. They were mostly boys. The mechanism of injury was 75% MVC or fall, but there were some cases of abuse and penetrating uh, brain injury as well. The findings are actually a little weird. Overall, there was no difference between hypertonic saline and mannitol in terms of reducing intracranial pressure. In fact, overall, these agents did not reduce intracranial pressure at all. The bolus didn't do it. But that's because most of the time, the cases got one of the agents when their intracranial pressure was less than 20. So when you give somebody hypertonic saline, their pressure is 17, it does not go down. You give someone mannitol and their pressure is 17, it does not go down. It stays the same. And that's why they did this stratified analysis at higher pressures. When the intracranial pressure was markedly elevated, of course, which is more relevant for the ER, I think this person's herniating. I, I don't have a, a monitor in there, but I think their pressure is 40 or something like that. When it was elevated, both of the agents reduced their intracranial pressure and hypertonic saline did it better than mannitol, statistically significantly better. So for example, when the ICP was more than 25, 
the intracranial pressure dropped by seven millimeters of mercury in the hypertonic group versus only three in the mannitol group. For people that had an ICP of greater than 30, the drop was roughly similar to about seven versus about two. In both cases, the results were statistically significantly different and better for hypertonic saline compared to mannitol, again, when the ICP was high. Did they give any clinical information on these people? Not just numbers, but like, did the ones who got, you know, hypertonic do better or something like that? No, the they, ones who they, got- they didn't. And remember, their analysis allowed for an individual kid to get yeah, both. both. So there's like, which is but actually- But did that happen a lot? It did happen ah, substantially. Okay. I think about a little over a quarter of the kids got both. So, you know, it's a, it's a little different. And, you know, honestly, it gets a little confusing then and, and stuff. That's actually good when individuals got both because then you're, you can eliminate that individual level variation. So that's kind of cool, but that only happened a quarter of the time. Anyway, the bottom line is hypertonic saline seems to drop the pressure a little bit more. For the record, they calculated cerebral perfusion pressures as well. And cerebral perfusion pressure rose with both agents slightly when they were administered at higher ICPs. So that's good. Intracranial pressure down, cerebral pressure went up. This is not randomized data, but it tends to conform with the sea change I think that we're seeing out there that is generally suggesting hypertonic saline is superior to mannitol for controlling the pressure component and the cerebral perfusion pressure component, at least in situations where the ICP is spiking. I think your point is is excellent. Does it actually matter? That we don't know. A more complex question that somebody's going to have to deal with in the future. Editor's commentary. In this non-randomized study, hypertonic saline boluses were associated with more significant drops in intracranial pressure and increases in cerebral perfusion pressure than mannitol boluses for brain-injured children with ICPs that were greater than 20. The findings are not directly from the ED, but this represents some of the largest and best data evaluating the effect of these drugs on intracranial pressure, particularly in children. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Safety of triage self-assessment using a symptom assessment app for walk-in patients in the emergency care setting, an observational prospective cross-sectional study, and this by Cote et al. from the Journal of Medical and Internet Research, mHealth and uHealth. So no matter where you are listening to in this world, no matter where you're practicing, it's very, very likely that ED crowding and overcrowding is a problem that you face. And solutions have been wide-ranging, including ideas on how to slow in the front door, like telephone triage systems, right? You call in and see if you're supposed to come in for this or not. But as technology continues to move forward, maybe there's a more technologically cool way to do this. So these authors explore the potential value of a digital patient triage solution in the form of a symptom assessment app that uses a large medical database combined with a complex Bayesian network to provide the user with five possible diagnoses and an urgency assessment on the need that they need to be seen. Thing sounds pretty cool. These are adult patients from a single emergency department in Germany who received an initial triage from a nurse. And then those in the lower three triage categories, so not the ones and twos, but the three, fours, and fives, were invited to participate and go through the app while they were waiting to be seen by a provider. 
they were blinded from the output of the app. So the, the patient didn't get to see what it said their top five diagnoses were, or if they should get up and go, <laughs> we'll go home, because they didn't want to encourage them to leave untreated, particularly when they weren't sure this thing was safe yet. So the focus of the study, again, was safety. So basically, they compared the output of the app with the triage assessment, and the physicians reviewed the comparison and assessed if following the app's advice could have potentially resulted in health-damaging outcomes. So of 397 patients approached, guess how many agreed to participate? All of them. 95%. 397. 100%. These are Germans. How could that be? Oh, no, that doesn't surprise me at all, dude. So the, the German folks, in the, they're sitting there in the waiting room. They're like, yeah, oh, absolutely. That's- so then speaking to feasibility, they said that the app was completed by 98% of patients. This is a German stuff. That seems, that seems high to me, too. Than America. America, so, they throw that app at you. I got your app right here. So the output of the app advised 56% of the patients to be seen in the ED, 40% to be seen in a primary care doctor's office, and 4% to not be seen at all. So this was <laughs> not, away. in fact, a medical problem. <laughs> when comparing the app output with the nurse triage assessment, were triaged the same or more conservatively by the app. Okay. And 9% were potentially under-triaged. To estimate the potential patient hazard effect among the under-triaged, that part was a little bit hard to follow because they had some physicians looking at it and stuff, but it seemed like 26% of them were at risk for harm if they had followed the app's advice. After a full evaluation by the doctor was 26% of the the 9%. 9%. Yeah, That's right. But none of these cases were deemed to have been at increased risk if they had gone to see a PMD or something like that in the same day. So there were three physicians reviewing every case, and in the overall sample, at least one physician felt that the app's advice could have potentially health-damaging information in 20 cases, or 5%. It's less clear to me, I don't see it anywhere in the paper, how many cases all three physicians felt this way or even two out of three. They list out each under-triaged case in a supplementary online appendix, and I looked at it sort of looking for a common thread to see if there was some particular complaint that always got under-triaged. I didn't see one. It appeared to be all over the map. So there's definitely some issues here, including potential bias by the adjudicators. Maybe they want to see this app do really well. I'm not exactly sure. There's no actual outcome data, right? We don't know what happened to the patients or how they did. We don't know how much coaching, if any, the RAs did to get through the app, that 98% feasibility. Maybe the patient's like, I'm a little stuck here. And it's like, okay, well, what's your thing? Let me you know, push some buttons for you and help you. And one big totally unknown for me is that, so they excluded all high acuity They excluded all the sick people. Right? I know. So that's it, a big problem. If the goal is to use this at home, because that's how right. the app you is can't designed, exclude the sick people. we really need to know how well it performed in them, because it damn well better say to all of them, mm. you come in. Yeah. If, a tri- if a nurse says you're a right. one, yeah. you need to come in. So right. we just have no clue there at all. So It is nice to see this technology moving forward. I love the idea of patients sort of filling these things out in the waiting room or at home. 
And I think this is a nice study demonstrating a really cool idea. Yeah, it is a great idea. And you know, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, once upon a time, we worked on some projects like this, got pretty far yeah. along. Mike and I, for the, that's probably we haven't talked about since our paper. Ch- Mike and I have been in doing things with our spare time yeah. for many, this is probably like 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, we were involved in a startup company doing yeah. this very thing. It was a really good idea back then. It failed then. due to management, actually. It's still a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. Mike and I could be filthy rich yeah. on a beach right yeah. now if that thing had come to fruition. Yeah, no, but- that, that is one of those things where I learned a lot about business because I'm not a businessman. I know that. I, I knew that already, but I'm like, you know, this idea and this concept. And they still haven't perfected it still 15 years later. And I think a lot of it has to do with more to do with business than even the technology and stuff like that, you know, because. Although I got to say, this one seemed a little more, a little cooler. Yeah, than well, the, one the, we the had tech, made. We, we didn't even have the, I mean, we didn't have, at, we didn't have iPhones back then. We were doing this on like this funky tablet thing. It was called that's a true. tough book. That's true. It was a wow, tough book. That's right. Remember that thing? I do remember. Yeah, it. it was cool though, and patients loved it. We studied it. We published on that. I was gonna say, if you're interested, just PubMed us. You yeah. can read that paper. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool. But I do really think that there's some legs here, especially for like those nurse advice lines. You you could do this and submit it to a nurse advice line, and the nurse could see instead of the nurse having to take like a 20 minute conversation, you know. What I found when we were doing our little gizmo that was somewhat similar to this is it allowed you to hone in on some very vital questions. You know, patients want to tell you all sorts of crazy stuff about the color of their poop and whether it floats and stuff like that. And that's great. Gives them an opportunity to do that. But then you can hone in on like, oh, there's some red flags here that I need to distinguish. And I think that that's where we're going to see a lot of this. Might be. Like a joint effort where it is the data collection instrument, but there's still a brain that's you know, beyond just a computer algorithm assessing that, I, you know, the, and the then can interact with the patient to clarify issues. Well, in my mind, the future for this stuff is still wide open. We should restart that business. Editor's commentary. In this observational study, the authors found that using an app for symptom assessment in triage would have given good advice to almost all low acuity patients in the ED with very little chance for real harm. The authors suggest that the goal of apps like this is to use them at home and as a pre-arrival triage, but one of the big issues is we need to know how it performs in high-acuity patients as well. The incredibly high enrollment rate and completion rate says to me that we are likely going to see more studies like this in the near future as crowding doesn't seem to be getting any better, and in my mind, all potential solutions are welcome. Abstract number 18, A Candle in the Dark. The Role of Indirect Evidence in Emergency Medicine Clinical Practice Guidelines. This is by Carpenter et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine. So this article is a thought piece by the group that put together the GRACE-2 guidelines or is putting together the GRACE-2 guidelines, or at least it's some of the author block. And it's a very interesting read for any of you who are interested in the process and the theories that underpin clinical practice guideline development. Basically. The authors start by saying they wanted to develop guidelines for reasonable and appropriate care in the emergency department for recurrent low-risk abdominal pain in the emergency department. So that's the GRACE-2 guidelines. And they had previously done the GRACE, I don't know if they're called GRACE-1 or just GRACE, guidelines for low-risk chest pain. They used the GRADE methodology, which is the sort of industry standard. It stands for Grading of Recommendation, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. And that's 
this EBM, Gordon Guyot sort of strategy and a grading assessment for evidence that flows into clinical practice guidelines. I think what prompted this article was that when they did this and they set up their inclusion criteria and their definitions of what low-risk abdominal pain was and you know all of these kinds of things, and they sent this out to their research librarians to pull all the papers that were related to it and all this kind of stuff, you know what they got? Nothing. They got no direct evidence, no studies that directly applied. So this article is more about how guidelines incorporate indirect evidence rather than simply writing a guideline that says there's no direct evidence. Does that make sense? The authors, I think, rather elegantly highlight that the field of emergency medicine is by its nature extremely variable and uncertain and cannot easily and directly incorporate findings from other specialties in many circumstances. And this is just an analogy I'm using. They didn't use this, but I like the example of appendicitis. The whole surgical world is talking about op versus non-op management of appendicitis, right? We've seen, I don't know how many randomized, really good randomized clinical trials on this. On the other hand, in emergency medicine, is the pressing question really whether we need op or non-op management? To me, the pressing question is by far which people need to have imaging to evaluate for appendicitis, right? That's like the much more salient question, but nobody's studying. There's never been a randomized controlled trial on that. So what they're saying is like, you know, since all the research or most of the research is happening in these other fields, how do we take that and sort of like triangulate on some recommendations for emergency medicine? They are making the argument that guideline writing groups have to get in the game and incorporate all available evidence, even if it's indirect, to help practicing physicians make real-time decisions. They make the point that the level of evidence when it's indirect needs to be brought down, right? You can't give it a level A recommendation with very strong, but not doing it is not doing anyone a favor. Now, the Jerry Hoffman in me says, look, these clinical practice guideline committees are too often and too easily co-opted by industry interests, and therefore their recommendations, unless it's based on really good direct evidence, is not really worth any more than an informed ER doc who's read this stuff themselves. There's definitely some truth to that, but not making a recommendation is basically, they're arguing at least, endorsing a form of sort of diagnostic nihilism that unfairly puts the whole decision back onto the treating physician who really probably doesn't have the training and certainly not the time to review all of the indirect evidence and try to come up with something. Does that all make sense there? Okay. Sanjay's nodding. Instead, by you know saying, oh, there's no direct evidence, we're not going to issue a recommendation, you leave them on an island, that clinical practitioner out there who's worried about how their judgment and how their interpretation of the data stands up to a community standard and guidelines can really help here. The authors conclude this sort of thought piece saying that, look, one of the big goals for the, the future is to increase the number of RO1-funded emergency medicine investigators so that the science is more directly applicable to emergency medicine questions. And I'm certainly comfortable with the idea of more RO1-funded emergency physicians or scientists, but I think the bigger issue is, is not really who does the research, but whether the research is on target. Because I know a lot of RO1-funded emergency physicians, or not a lot, but I know some, who are doing cardio, basically cardiovascular research that's 
you know, they're just going where the money is. And what we really need, and they, they acknowledge this too, is a National Institute of Emergency Care that doesn't care so much about who does the research, but just making sure that it's targeted towards the populations of interest and the research questions of interest for emergency medicine. You know, anyway, I think at this point, I feel like I'm kind of rambling about this paper. It's a good paper. I'll just sum it up by saying that this article gives a nice overview of that tension that develops when there is not great or direct evidence, but there is great need for a clinical practice guideline. And it basically shows how and why this SAEM writing group is handling this tension under the principle of like, this is transparency. We, you know, it's indirect. We're doing it. This is why we're doing it. Take it for what it will. Finally, I think for what it's worth, the actual recommendations of the Grace 2 group are supposed to come out in May of 2022, and it is May 6th, 2022, and they are not out yet. So I can't actually tell you what they said vis-a-vis low-risk abdominal, recurrent abdominal pain patients, but when they come out within the next few weeks, I'll grab them and we'll talk about them next month. Editor's commentary. This is a well-written invited commentary that describes the process that the GRACE-2 writing team used to incorporate indirect evidence into their newest guideline regarding patients with recurrent, low-risk abdominal pain. The article highlights the difficulty faced when needing to produce guidelines to aid clinical care in the face of no direct evidence. Abstract number 19. Outcomes of a controlled trial with visiting therapy dog teams on pain in adults in an emergency department. This is by Carrie et al. from PLOS 1. Although therapy dogs have been used in multiple healthcare settings, ranging from inpatient wards to post-op recovery, data is very limited in emergency department settings. I covered a meta-analysis recently on this topic, I think it was March of this year, and although the overall results were inconclusive, there were only two studies included identified which bring dogs into the emergency department to interact with patients. So the authors of this paper from Canada the Royal University Hospital Emergency Department, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, conducted a prospective trial where patients were randomized based on day of the week to a control group where they just got usual care or an intervention group consisting of a 10-minute visit with a certified therapy dog in addition to their usual care. Eligible patients were essentially adults with some degree of pain who were not an extremist and who were willing to have a visit with a dog. They were not allergic to dog no, They actually give the list of, you know, the flow diagram. Yes. And it's like some were scared of dogs and there was like some other stuff. But most people, come on, let's be real. They want to see a dog if they're not feeling it. Always free. You know what? Honestly, it freaks me out when I meet people who are scared of dogs. <laughs> you don't understand. It. I just, I'm like, what? But I mean, I, I know. Back in the day, dogs were mean. I do remember being chased by dogs as a child and stuff like that. But now, I mean, like now dogs are nice. Dogs are the best. So, and we actually, you know, when I did that meta-analysis, we got some emails and stuff about people talking about their own therapy dogs, so it's not like it's just me. No, no. You're right. They present data on almost 200 patients and use a two-way ANOVA to compare mean difference in scores across dependent variables, including pain, anxiety, depression, and well-being. Truthfully, they present a lot of data and statistics, a little more than I think was necessary, truth be told, looking at things like impact by different genders. Didn't you say it was a randomized trial? Randomized by day. 
Yeah. yeah. So they, they do a lot of stuff here. Which Usually I that think makes is, the analysis fairly easy. But but. They made it a little complicated. But I think I'm just going to sum up what they found. They found, they observed anyway, significant changes in pain as well as significant changes in anxiety, depression, and well-being in the therapy dog intervention group when compared with the control group. Now, the truth is they were all statistically significant, and maybe in the written abstract I'll give the numbers, but the absolute differences were pretty small. The clinical significance is a little bit so-so to me. I mean, if you broke your arm, a therapy dog's not going to make your pain go, you know, down to a four from a 10. You know? That's right. You know, but on the margin, I bet there's something. I'm going to bet there's something. Now, more than most, I want to believe, but I do have to acknowledge that even the small difference they observed might not have been due to the dog itself because the interaction also involved a handler who was there talking to them, or maybe it was just having something to like distract them for 10 minutes or some personalized attention. It's possible this same impact could be accomplished with another form of distraction that would be much easier to implement on kind of a wide scale level. I have no idea. Also, we don't know anything about, or not much anyway, about analgesic use between the groups and some other stuff. So, you know, it's another soft one, a little bit of a soft call saying dogs have some benefits. Hey, if you can get a therapy dog into your ED, you should do it. If not for the patients. For the for provider. Your staff. Well, that we ha- that one <laughs> yeah. is a little bit clearer the, that the, the, the providers book versus the, the, dog. the providers really like it. Now, this one's looking at the patients, and my gut is most patients like it too. Editor's commentary. In this prospective trial, the authors found a statistically significant improvement in pain, anxiety, and depression and well-being among ED patients who were exposed to 10 minutes of dog therapy. In truth, the absolute differences were small. There was no control intervention, and the statistical method seemed a little bit overkill to me. But it is another borderline positive finding that gets me closer to my eventual goal of bringing Toby to work with me every day. Abstract number 20, bed downtime. The novel use of a quality metric allows inpatient providers to improve patient flow from the emergency department. Bodnar et al., Emergency Medicine Journal. And I love this article and concept. It kind of falls flat at the end a little bit, but we'll go through it. The article starts off by noting that hospital crowding is associated with ED boarding, which in turn is associated with ED crowding. I know that, please take notes, Sanjay. I know this is a novel for you. This is all new to me. Please spend a lot of time talking about this. And that in turn results in, you know, obviously poor flow through the department and, and some hint at poor outcomes. They note that inpatient hospitalists are often pressured to reduce length of stay or get discharges done early in the morning to alleviate the demand for inpatient services and basically make space for the boarding ED patients. But reducing length of stay is hard. There's a lot of components to that. Again, much of it is outside of the control of inpatient individual providers or even their health system, as you might imagine. There's you know, people are waiting for nursing home placement and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, not very many people that can influence that. So they collectively put their heads together and decided that what they could control most directly was something they called bed downtime. This is the time between when an inpatient bed is emptied and the next ED patient is assigned to that bed. It incorporates a number of process steps at this individual hospital that include utilization review, Etc. And it's just one component of ED boarding time, right? 
because ED boarding time is the total time from when the ED doc says, hey, they're ready to be admitted until they're gone. But this component of it, that that's when they talk to the nurses, talk to each other, the doctors talk to each other, the doctors talk to utilization review and approve the admission and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they have to write orders prior to that. They didn't go into that. So there's a pretty robust discussion of the processes used to reduce this ED bed downtime metric and how they engage various parties to decide. Ultimately, it ends up being an intervention that alerts the hospitalist the minute that a bed is open. It gives educational efforts to all the hospitalists to get them on side saying, look, this is a really big deal. We need to do this kind of stuff. And it gives guidelines for best practices and workflow. And then finally gives sort of um, that audit and feedback dashboard to the providers to tell them how well they're doing. The study itself was an interrupted time series analysis comparing the pre and post phase and looking at ED bedtime in this pre and post phase for a ward that was controlled by these hospitalists. The observed effect, and this is kind of interesting, was a decrease in bed downtime from 254 minutes down to 129 minutes. So a massive decline, right? 120, more, about 120 minutes of decline, two hours for patients that were admitted to that unit. The time series analysis shows that the time started to drop just before the official rollout of the project and continued to drop throughout the intervention phase and stayed low during the post-intervention phase, though the amount of time in that follow-up phase is pretty small. The real problem with this particular intervention is that it did not affect the ED boarding time for patients admitted to that unit at all. It was embarrassingly high at 630 minutes. That's right, their boarding time was 630 minutes on average in the pre-phase and did not change at all. So how do you explain that? How did this downtime squeeze two hours out of this process, but the boarding time not change at all? Well, we don't know. And they postulate a couple of different things, but I have some different theories. It is possible that without this intervention, the ED boarding time would have increased by those two hours. And this just like counterbalanced it perfectly. But I tend to favor the idea that when they squeezed it, what happened is they just didn't tell people that the bed was available because the bed had to be noted to be available by nursing and such to start that clock. And so the nurses, you know, and people just compensated for there being a shorter time by adding more hurdles into identifying that there's a bed. That is, it takes four hours to turn over a bed in the units. The nurses have to decompress, do their thing, clean, etc. If you try to make that two hours, they'll find a way to make it four hours. And that's the bottom line. And I think for me, what this does is it shows the importance of making measures that actually are not just process measures, but that are meaningful outcome measures. Because you can muck with processes and the outcomes don't change. In this case, the changes in the metric were not associated with changes in the important outcome, which is really that boarding time in the ED, how long did that part last? So it's a bad metric. They don't say that in the article. They're like, it worked and all these kinds of, but it's a bad metric. It's not associated with what we care about. I would favor something much more direct, the time from an empty bed till the ED patient was placed in that bed or the time from, yeah, I think an empty bed. The minute the patient before leaves until the ED patient is in there, that's your metric. And one component of it's this, but the goal is to shorten that metric. That's the truer measure of bed downtime and one that I'm interested in seeing develop. Now, it includes a broad set of variables that affect it, the time to clean, the time to transport, the time to give reports, etc. 
And some people will sort of scoff at that and say, you have to break it down by smaller measures and stuff like that. But I actually kind of like it. I think it's good because it gives hospital stakeholders numerous potential sites to intervene upon. And, you know, frankly, I think about it like these sepsis measures for CMS, right? They tell us we have to give antibiotics within an hour, right? Or they tell us we have to do all these things. They don't tell us you have to have assessed a sepsis patient and get them into a bed within five minutes. You have to do this, that. They leave it up to us. You figure out where your choke points are. We're only interested in the outcome of getting the antibiotics done on time, you know, once the, the, there's been a declaration of sepsis or something like that. And I kind of think that that's what we should be demanding of our various different hospital administrators is like, here's our measure. We want this time from when I, the boarding time, to be small. You guys figure out what components are and then report it out. So anyway, I, you know, ultimately this paper leaves me kind of flat because they say it's a positive, but I really think it's a negative. But it was a nice effort. And I applaud them for even starting to think about this from a hospitalist side, how they can improve emergency department throughput, which was a nice piece. Editor's commentary. This is a nice study that attempted to improve ED boarding by decreasing a measure, the author's term, inpatient bed downtime, or the time between when an inpatient bed was ready until it was assigned to an ED patient who was waiting. Their intervention worked in that they significantly reduced the bed downtime, but failed in that this improvement did not translate to reduced ED boarding times. This highlights the challenges of developing quality improvement measures that focus on process as opposed to clearly useful outcomes. Hello, EMA. Welcome to the July 2022 Ultra Summary. Hope everyone is staying cool. I'm Jess Monis, and I'm here with Jenny Beck Esme. Hi, Jenny. I missed you. How are you? Hi, Jess. I've been missing you, too. I am doing well. I mean, speaking of keeping cool, it is only May when we're recording July here, but it's already 90 degrees in New York City, so <laughs> it's going to be a scorcher, I think. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm in Arizona, so it's like, you know, it's always I mean, I guess like, sure. yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's always like the hottest here. Jess. Yes. No one cares about the weather. How do you feel? Everyone wants to know. All right. Well, you know what? I'm hanging in. I will say I switched to this new chemo regimen and it is rough and makes my other ones seem completely tame. I spend about five days horizontal, but then I start to rally. But big picture here, Jenny, is only two more cycles. That's it. You know, I knew that because last time it was three and we talked about <laughs> making a paper chain. And right. so, you know, I've got this mental paper chain that I'm tearing off for you. Oh, me too. Me too. But I also want to say this. I want to say for all the folks listening that have been through this, I salute you. I had no idea it was this hard. Seriously. And also, and, yeah. and if you're listening and if you know anyone going through this, just reach out. I mean, it means so much. That is great. Yeah, I, I totally think you're right. Even little things, little texts or cards or whatever. I think it, I'm sure it means a lot. Yeah, no, it definitely does. All right, but enough of this mushy stuff. Okay, enough, enough, enough. enough, enough. enough. Okay. All right, Jenny, you ready to hit this? Ready, ready, <laughs> ready. We've got some good papers here. Let's do it. All right, I'll go first. Paper number one. Emergency department visits before sudden unexpected infant death. A touch point for unsafe sleep reduction. 
Infant death is hard to talk about. We've all heard the term SIDS, but not all of us are as familiar with the term SUID. It stands for Sudden, Unexplained Infant Death, which includes those without a clear cause, such as SIDS, and those with a known cause, such as suffocation, often due to unsafe sleeping conditions. There have been national interventions to help improve infant sleep habits, such as Back is Best, but it doesn't seem to have done the trick. Every infant death in this paper had an unsafe sleep situation. The authors found that about a quarter of these kids had an unrelated ED or urgent care visit before their demise, and they suggest that this may present a unique opportunity for a targeted prevention effort, and I agree. Let's educate our parents. Even if it's a pamphlet in the discharge instructions or some signs in the PZD, something is better than nothing. Paper number two, Covert Brain Infarction in Emergency Department Patients, Prevalence, Clinical Correlates, and Treatment Opportunities. This paper looks at how often patients are found to have evidence of old strokes on their brain imaging in the ED and how we communicate these findings to these patients. Incidentalomas are common in emergency medicine, and it's our responsibility, like it or not, probably, to discuss them with patients so they can pursue the appropriate follow-up. They did a single-site retrospective review looking at the chart to find patients who had a CT head and were discharged from the hospital. They looked at the radiology report for large territory or lacunar infarcts, and then looked further into the chart to see if there was any documentation that the patient was made aware of these findings. They included just over 800 patients in the study and found an incidental brain infarction in 11% of these. And of these, only 9% appear to have been told about their finding. There's a lot of limitations here. The methods are certainly not perfect. And of course, if the conversation making the patient aware of the findings occurred but wasn't documented, then it wasn't counted. But we are busy in the ED, perhaps now more so than ever. These serious, even if incidental, findings should be communicated to patients and patients should be counseled appropriately on the next steps. You know what? I think that's great. And I'm very good at documenting if there's, you know, an incidental finding of pulmonary nodule or some kind of mass. I'm very good at that. I tell the patient, I write it down, I put it in their discharge instructions. But this is a good reminder, right? The old infarct that we see and we just assume like, oh, okay, they probably know know about it. Of course they know about it. Exactly. I think what would be really helpful is even having like a discharge instruction for like pulmonary nodule found, old infarct found, you know, like something that is standardized that we can like click and include to make sure that they at least have something I think would be very helpful. That's a good idea. All of you admin-y, you know, computer people out there, get on that. (laughs) Exactly. Paper number three, the emergency department incidence of incidental intracranial aneurysm on CT study. If you go fishing, you will find fish. The same will hold true for CTA. Do enough and you will find an incidental aneurysm. So what are you going to do with that? In this paper, the authors looked at about 1,000 CTAs done for any indication and found a 3.3% incidental aneurysm rate. As Sanjay talks about, this may be an underrepresentation. If an aneurysm was intervened upon, it was not considered incidental but that logic is faulty. If a patient presents with worse headache of life and an aneurysm is found, there is a reasonable chance some neurosurgeon is going to do something about it. Was it the cause of the headache? Not necessarily. So if you need a CTA, by all means get it. 
But if you are working up a thunderclap headache within an appropriate time limit, get a non-con CT and stop. The last thing you need is more work and unnecessary consults. Paper number four, does hospital admission slash observation for chest pain improve patient outcomes after emergency department evaluation for suspected acute coronary syndrome? To answer this question, ideally, we would have a randomized control trial comparing discharge to admission, but we don't. These authors use advanced observational methods, specifically instrumental variable analysis, to try to answer this question. It's worth a listen back to the full segment for Mike's review of how this kind of analysis works. They looked at almost 80,000 patients from the Kaiser system who presented with chest pain but did not have a diagnosis of acute MI during their ED evaluation. Of these, around 14% were admitted and less than 1% had a major adverse cardiac event in the following 30 days. When they performed the instrumental variable analysis, they found no benefit to the hospitalization. And, in fact, they found a slight increased risk of harm in the hospitalization group. There seems to be more and more evidence that an ED rule-out on the appropriate patient is probably sufficient, and these patients are appropriate for outpatient follow-up. That said, in this study, we have to remember that these are Kaiser patients who likely had decent follow-up, which may or may not be the case where you're working. I think this is not surprising at all. Yeah, I agree. Right, it's not surprising, but it also all comes down to the follow-up, right? It's like you got to have a patient who has good follow-up to have these good outpatient, you know, plans in place, so. I mean, that's true for everything, right? That's true for chest pain, that's true for belly pain, I mean, that's true for for everything. If they can't get appropriate follow-up, then you're left with keeping them in the hospital. Yeah. Paper number five. Pre- and apneic high-flow oxygenation for rapid-sequence intubation in the emergency department, the pre-airway trial, a multi-center randomized control trial. Having a patient desat when you intubate is the worst. You have 20 people in the room calling out the SATs to you, 94, 91, 89, yeah, yeah, I get it, get the tube in the hole, check. We all pre-oxygenate, and I think most of us are on board with apneic oxygenation. This paper compared the 15-liter nasal cannula that is typically used to high flow at 60 liters per minute. DSAT rates were 7% lower with high flow, but this was not statistically significant. In most of our patients, it won't make a difference. But could there be a subset in whom it can? Perhaps, but this is not the paper to tell us about that. All right. Paper number six, positive signs on physical examination are not always indications for endotracheal tube intubation in patients with facial burns. Most of us have been trained to be pretty aggressive with intubation in patients with facial burns and concerned for smoke inhalation injury. This is a retrospective study that attempts to find features that are more likely to predict that actual inhalation injury. They included roughly 300 patients with facial burns and found that only 20% of these had a smoke inhalation injury. They perform a univariate and multivariate logistic regression without the best methods, but they found that multiple variables were associated with smoke inhalation injury, including things you would expect like singed nasal hairs, hoarseness, shortness of breath, and of course, a positive chest x-ray. But only shortness of breath was found to be independently associated with inhalation injury on their multivariate analysis. While most patients with a facial burn won't ultimately have an inhalation injury, this paper identifies a lot of features that we are already looking for when deciding to take that airway. To me, it's really just mostly practice-affirming and doesn't move my needle much. 
Paper number seven, COVID-19-associated croup in children. Can COVID cause croup? Seems like the answer is yes. In this study, 75 children presenting with croup symptoms were diagnosed with COVID, about 80% in the Omicron period. Not all the kids got a full viral panel, but from the ones that did, only one had a co-infection. Of note, my six-year-old gets croup with every single viral infection he has had to date, so I can almost guarantee that he would also develop it with COVID, but hoping not to find out. I feel like... COVID has this weird black box disease, or at least it's felt like that from the beginning, where if you ask the question, can COVID cause X, the answer is going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it can't be right. <laughs> can COVID cause weird things on your toes? Yeah, I think the answer right. is yes. Like, yeah. I mean, that's why there was all these conspiracy theories about it having been cooked up in a lab at the beginning, right? Because it's like, what virus can cause every single possible symptom and finding? COVID. COVID Ugh. can do it. Paper number eight, tunneled peritoneal catheter versus repeated paracentesis for recurrent ascites, a cost-effectiveness analysis. This is a small retrospective study that looks at 100 patients who had their recurrent ascites managed initially in the classic fashion with repeated large-volume paracentesis procedures, and then they were converted to a tunnel peritoneal catheter. They followed these patients for only a short period of time after the catheter was placed, which is a huge limitation of the study, and they monitored for complications and symptom management. They found the rate of both leaks and cellulitis were similar between the two treatment modalities, and actually they found a higher incidence of SBP in the phase where patients had repeated paracentesis, 11%, versus 2% in the tunnel catheter phase hospitalizations and ED visits for ascites were also higher in the large-volume paracentesis phase. So, they ultimately concluded that despite the higher initial cost of the procedure, the tunnel catheter is more cost-effective because of the repeat large-volume paracentesis treatment requiring so many more ED visits and hospitalizations. This is a small study, so not a practice-changing paper in of itself, but it does suggest that there is perhaps a better treatment out there for these complicated patients. I believe this wholeheartedly. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel like this is one of the things that needs to be sent out to like, you know, insurance companies because, you know, if they were like to reject, you know, having the um the tunnel, the tunnel catheter. catheter placed, right? But I absolutely think it would be cost effective because how many and times do we see this over and over and over, over and over and over and not just cost effective but so much nicer for the patient i mean they don't want to keep coming back to the er to get that right. procedure it's awful right totally agree all right paper number nine non-inferiority of intranasal ketamine compared to iv morphine for musculoskeletal pain relief among older adults in an emergency department a randomized control trial the authors created this study under the principle that sparing narcotics in older folks is beneficial, and when looking for an alternative, why not ketamine? Matt Delaney talks about low-dose ketamine in June 2018's MRAP if you want more on the trend. Patients in this study were randomized to receive a placebo plus either 0.3 mg per kg of intranasal ketamine or 0.1 mg per kg of IV morphine. Mean pain scores were similar between groups, and they concluded that intranasal ketamine was non-inferior to IV morphine. The problem is that two-thirds of the patients were excluded, and they didn't talk about things like hallucinations or if there were any adverse events outside of the two-hour monitoring period. I would file this under the category of ketamine for all that ails you, and I wouldn't start throwing this at granny just yet. 
Noted. Paper number 10, Severe Bradycardia from Severe Hyperkalemia, Patient Characteristics, Outcomes, and Factors Associated with Hemodynamic Support. We all have been taught the classic findings of hypokalemia on an EKG, including bradycardia with PR prolongation, peaked T waves, QRS widening, and of course, the sine wave. This large retrospective study of patients with hyperkalemia and bradycardia tries to describe the ECG findings that were present on the initial presentation. Over the study period, they found 87 patients who had both hyperkalemia and bradycardia. Of these, only about one-third had peak T waves, one-third had a prolonged QT. When it comes to the initial rhythm, one-third had a junctional bradycardia, a quarter had sinus bradycardia, and a quarter had a first-degree AV block. Mike gets into the study limitations, but overall, this study should serve as a reminder that the EKG findings of hyperkalemia don't proceed in a linear fashion from peak T waves through to a sine wave. In fact, you may just be much more likely to find bradycardia right away. Listen back to the MRAP October 2019 critical care mailbag for more on hyperkalemia. Paper 11, dexamethasone versus prednisone in children hospitalized with asthma exacerbation. No difference was found in 30-day return rates in children who received either dexamethasone or prednisone prednisolone, either as a first agent or as the sole agent. There was also no difference in secondary outcomes like length of stay and need for PICU upgrade. This was limited by being a single-center study, but it is the best comparison we have to date and suggests that you can grab dex or prednisone and it won't make a difference. That's good to know. I like going with dex for these kids personally. Paper number 12, Risk of Malignancy Following Emergency Department Bell's Palsy Diagnosis in Children. Pediatric cancers were terribly upsetting to me even before having a child. Now I cannot even think about them to record this podcast without losing sleep. So here we go. A previous study of Bell's Palsy in children found that about 1% of cases went on to have a cancer diagnosis, usually leukemia. These authors attempt to validate that finding. They looked at almost 19,000 cases of pediatric Bell's palsy diagnosed in the ED and followed the kids for two to three months after. They found that 0.33% of the children with Bell's palsy had a new oncologic diagnosis in the next 60 days. As a control, they looked at children who presented with cough to see if those kids developed a cancer, and they found that only 0.03% incidence of oncology diagnosis in those kids in the next 60 days. So there really was something about the Bell's palsy. Now, one-third of a percent isn't the 1% that was previously found, but this study probably underestimates the true number, as it wouldn't include any kid who had a malignancy diagnosis in an outside system, and it also excluded a bunch of kids who had the malignancy diagnosis made right there in the ED at the time of their Bell's palsy presentation. Yikes. So what does this mean? Well, Jess, I think you and I talked about this before. Maybe a screening CBC is worth the effort in these kids, especially if you're considering giving steroids as this could precipitate a tumor lysis syndrome. And definitely, definitely, the parents need to be counseled on close follow-up so there is absolutely no delay to that potential cancer diagnosis. Yeah, this is terrifying. I mean, I know. Because Bell's palsy, I mean, in adults, it's one of those things that we just like, we don't really get too scared about, right? Once we've decided it's not a central thing, it's just a Bell's, we're like, oh, whatever, it's going to be fine. Not so much so in the kids. Ugh. 
Paper 13, Naloxone and Buprenorphine Prescribing Following U.S. Emergency Department Visits for Suspected Opioid Overdose, August 2019 to April 2021. Naloxone can reverse an overdose and buprenorphine can help prevent them, so why don't we prescribe them more? This large database study looked at trends during the pandemic. Opioid overdose visits increased by almost 25% at the start of the pandemic, but declined back to pre-pandemic levels by March of 2021. Of the 150,000 opioid overdose visits analyzed, naloxone and buprenorphine were only prescribed about 8% of the time. As an interesting comparison, epinephrine was prescribed to about half of ED visits for anaphylaxis. We know both work, yet there is a disconnect in prescribing patterns. We clearly need to do better, but we also could use some help. And with that, we will perfectly segue into Jenny's Hey-o! next abstract. Paper number 14. Exactly. <laughs> Sustained implementation of a multi-component strategy to increase emergency department-initiated interventions for opioid use disorder. So obviously, as Jess just pointed out, the opioid crisis is a huge problem, and obviously we recognize that. And as ED problems, unfortunately, it's kind of our problem to deal with it. We know that we really can make a difference. But getting us to adopt these practices to intervene, prescribing things like naloxone and buprenorphine, can be challenging, obviously. These authors tried to figure out what would work to get us to actually do this and to continue to do it. The article goes into detail on how they came up with their plan, but ultimately they decided on a three-fold plan. First, they incentivized ex-waiver training with money. Huh. Docs are often asked to do many of these kind of trainings on our own without any compensation. So maybe even just a small financial compensation could really increase the number of providers interested in taking this step. Next, they had a peer counselor program that seems like it was super efficient and easy to use. Think very little provider burden here. And this helped the patients to kind of navigate the process of these prescriptions after their discharge. And last, they use some of the same basic stuff that we use all the time, like public praise and wearable reminders, you know, those badge buddy kinds of things. Ultimately, the system seemed to work. In the pre-intervention period, only 3% of patients with an opioid use disorder received a prescription, compared to 23% in the post-intervention period. So, if opioid use disorder is your passion project, or if you're looking for a good QI project at your institution, this paper is probably worth a full look. Obviously, it's not definitive evidence of success for this one strategy, but it certainly could function as a jumping-off point. Paper 15. Incidents in Natural History of Pediatric Large Vessel Occlusion Stroke, a Population Study. Pediatric strokes are rare, but how rare are they? This retrospective Australian study found the incidence of a large vessel occlusion to be 0.24 per 100,000 patients per year so extraordinarily rare. Most of the patients with LVOs presented within an appropriate time window for thrombectomy, but only one-third underwent the procedure. The patients who did not have a thrombectomy had worse neurologic outcomes, with about 70% experiencing moderate to severe disability and death. As we said, this is a rare event, but it does happen. So if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, treat it as such. If you have a kid with a neurologic deficit, call an acute stroke and get neurology on board right away. So I have a bone to pick here with Sanjay and Mike in their paper selection for this month because I feel like 
they are sending us into the summer here with just like some really downer pediatric <laughs> you know, it's like We're talking, you know, SIDS. We're talking pediatric cancers. You're talking about pediatric strokes. And here I'm going to go on with pediatric severe traumatic brain injuries. Uh. Like, what's up, guys? Paper number 16. Comparison of intracranial pressure measurements before and after hypertonic saline or mannitol treatment in children with severe traumatic brain injury. Now, this is an ICU-based observational study of children with brain injuries and increased ICP, comparing, as I said, mannitol to hypertonic saline. The authors looked at the change in ICP around the time of each bolus given to the children who were enrolled, and since many of the children received more than one bolus, and sometimes even more than one type of bolus, any given patient could have multiple data points that were included. So they used this kind of stratified analysis with linear analysis to adjust for things like age, GCS, some other clinical features, and then, of course, for the fact that some of the patients were included multiple times. Anyway, overall, they found no difference between hypertonic saline and mannitol for reducing ICP, and in fact, they found that actually neither agent really seemed to reduce ICP. But this could be because in most of the cases in this study, the child received the agent when their ICP was already less than 20. When the ICP was more significantly elevated, like we might find in the ED, they found a bigger decrease in ICP with the hypertonic saline than with the mannitol. Now, this isn't a randomized trial, so not our gold standard data, but it seems to suggest that we should probably be reaching for hypertonic saline rather than mannitol in these patients. Okay, good to know. Paper 17, safety of triage self-assessment using a symptom assessment app for walk-in patients in the emergency care setting, observational prospective cross-sectional study. Wouldn't it be nice if patients could use an app and triage themselves at home? Come in only if necessary or see your PCP in the morning? The authors of this study assessed the safety of just such an app by comparing it to an established nursing triage system. 91% were triaged the same or more conservatively, which means 9% were under-triaged, and about 5% were considered to be potential hazardous situations by a reviewing physician. The problem with this type of an app is it only takes one miss to fall apart. One missed MI, one missed stroke. It's a little too risky for my taste. Yeah, did you say 5% were identified to be potentially hazardous? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's pretty high. <laughs> that's way higher than one missed stroke or one missed MI. Right. I mean, does it mean that these patients had like a STEMI or an acute stroke? No, no right. but it's but they still... needed to be evaluated. Yeah, 5% right. of them that docs thought needed to be evaluated. So, hmm, right. interesting. Paper number 18, A Candle in the Dark, The Role of Indirect Evidence in Emergency Medicine Clinical Practice Guidelines. This is a commentary piece by the group that put together the GRACE-2 guidelines for low-risk recurrent abdominal pain in the ED. They described the methods they used in order to incorporate indirect evidence in the creation of their guidelines. They point out that emergency medicine as a field has a high level of uncertainty kind of at baseline, and that we can't always rely on data from other specialties where their practice patterns might look quite different. They point out that the level of evidence needs to be lowered when the evidence is not directly applicable, and the strength of the recommendation is likely going to be reduced as a result, but that a recommendation should still be made because the alternative is to leave everything up to the individual physician who may 
be in the dark as to what the rest of the specialty is doing, and certainly doesn't have the time or the energy to do an exhaustive research on every clinical question out there. It's an interesting read and certainly highlights the need to have more high-quality evidence that asks ED-relevant questions. Paper 19. Outcomes of a controlled trial with visiting therapy dog teams on pain in adults in an emergency department. Patients in this study were randomized to receive or not receive a 10-minute therapy dog visit in addition to usual care. They found some significant improvement in pain, anxiety, depression, and well-being in the intervention group, but it was small. Could there be other variables that influence this effect, such as dedicated attention by the handler? Could be, but I can tell you from personal experience that it can also help. I had surgery a number of years ago and was in rough shape post-op. My husband tracked down a therapy dog and showed up to my room with it, and I just lit up. Did it impact my overall care? No, but it was adorable. It made me feel better in the moment. I want these dog studies to work out. Like I want, <laughs> I want therapy dogs to be a real thing that happens all the time. They're so cute. I mean, they're so, yeah. you know, the dogs are so sweet. And it's like, even as like, you know, physician, when I would see like a dog where I used to work, there was a dog that always came through the ED. It was like, you know, it was so, it just made my day. I love it. Paper number 20. Fed downtime, the novel use of a quality metric allows inpatient providers to improve patient flow from the emergency department. Fed downtime is the time between when an inpatient bed is emptied and the next ED patient is assigned to that bed. A lot of things make up this time, but it would include things like physician handoff that, you know, maybe some stuff that we can directly influence. Ultimately, once a bed is empty, there may be inefficient processes that can be streamlined to get the next patient into that bed. This paper goes into detail about the processes used to reduce this metric, but in short, they implemented a process that alerts the hospitalist that a bed is open, guidelines for best practices and workflow, and weekly feedback. They found their initiative decreased the bed downtime from around 250 minutes to around 130 minutes. But the post-intervention time period was rather short, so we really don't know if this produced a lasting change. Now, this sounds good. They cut that number by a lot. But unfortunately, this did not translate to a decrease in ED boarding time. So while it's an interesting metric and one that they were able to change, it didn't impact the metric that actually matters. Woof. Mm. You know, I, I feel like it's like a you need all hands on deck, right? You need to like discharge the patients early, get them out, clean the beds, turn them over. I mean, it has to be like everything to get these patients out of the emergency department. It has to be everything and it has to be something because it is a problem that needs to be solved. <laughs> because the nothing we're doing is just not working. <laughs> well, at least the nothing that it feels like it's doing. Right. I'm sure there are plenty of administrators listening to this podcast who are saying they are doing a lot. Yeah. I am sure you are. Oh. One day. One day. One day. One day. We can dream. Well, <laughs> with that, with that dream, with that dream that we all have for a brighter future with less ED boarding, let's sign off and say we'll see you all in August. Sounds good, Jenny. See you next month. It's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty. With Ken Milne. This is the July Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. I'm Swami here with my good friend and colleague, Ken Milne. Hello, my friend. 
It's uh, great to be back on and talking about this. And, and last month, you did drop a little hint about what we were going to get into. The hint was the single word normal, which can has the word normal ever been used to describe you before? <laughs> well, it depends on your <laughs> definition of normal. I'm not certain I would fit into everyone's definition of normal. And any time I think of the word normal, my mind automatically goes to a movie. For those of you who know Ken well, I mean, I want to guess that this is going to be an 80s movie because I know your love of 80s movies. Yeah, and you would be incorrect this time. Oh. I know. I mean, it is the best era, but there was this 1974 classic black and white film noir, shall we say, starring Gene Wilder. And the movie was called Young Frankenstein. I highly recommend this movie. Oh, I, I, any listeners who have not seen that movie, go ahead and pause, pause on the recording and uh, go and, and, and watch Young Frankenstein. It is an absolute classic. And Ken, we were talking about it before. I think it's time for me to break my kids into the Young Frankenstein movie. I think they are ready to take on that comedy. But I'm not exactly sure what you're getting to when you say normal and Young Frankenstein, because again, not words that are often used together. Yeah, well, there was this one scene where this joke was played out. Dr. Frankenstein was asking his assistant, Igor, or Igor, depending on who you pronounce it. That was part of the joke, too. And he's saying, you know, Igor, what was the name of the person's brain that you exhumed and that I have just transplanted into this seven and a half foot monster? And I really can't wait because I don't remember this part exactly, but what was the name of that brain transplant? Oh, the name of the patient or the name of the person was Abby. Abby sounds like a pretty normal name. Yeah, Abby Normal. <laughs> so we'll put a link in the show notes to that classic scene from Young Frankenstein. But that was explaining why Dr. Frankenstein was like, what's wrong with the monster? Oh, the brain. It was Abby Normal. <laughs> well, I will say that Gene Wilder does a much better job with this joke and the delivery of this joke than we just did. So go watch the clip. Yeah. And we're again, go watch the whole movie. We're, we're, we're not comedians. We're, we're, no, we're physicians. We're so funny. let's talk science here. Yeah. Let's get into the science here. And, and so this idea of normal, and we're going to kind of expand it, it's actually normalizing numbers. And the discussion that we're going to get into comes from kind of a, a bit of a throwback article. I, I wouldn't quite say a classic, but it's an intensive care medicine, 2005 by Kavanaugh and Meyer, normalizing physiological variables in acute illness, five reasons for caution. And the authors argue that when a patient becomes sick, particularly when they're sick with critical illness, so we're talking major trauma, sepsis, ruptured aortic aneurysm, there are physiologic changes that lead to vital sign abnormalities. And we want to normalize those physiologic parameters. We want to normalize those vital signs, but sometimes trying to correct the numbers that are in front of us isn't the best thing to do. Yeah, we have this intervention bias in medicine in general. And certainly when we see an abnormal vital sign, I mean, it's vital, right? We have to correct it. There's something vital about that sign. And so these authors give five basic reasons why clinicians monitor and attempt to correct abnormal values. So the five reasons they posit are, the first, traditionally monitoring physiology directs how therapy is applied. The second reason was deviation from normal values has been used as an indicator for the severity of the illness. So the farther off you are from the normal, the worse your illness. The third reason, 
was it's been claimed to work in some situations. So there's examples where normalizing something works. So somebody comes in with rapid AFib and we correct it. Somebody's severely hypoxic and we correct it. Somebody's severely hypotensive and we correct it. A fourth reason is if your vital signs are getting worse, it's associated with a poor prognosis. And the fifth is if you have improving vital signs, well, that's associated with better prognosis. I think all five of those reasons make sense, but like most things, it's more complicated than simply fixing the number. We're striving to fix the physiologic parameters, but we can do real harm if we just try to fix the numbers that are a reflection of those physiologic parameters. We have medications that can slow down a heart rate. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for the patient. And so the authors continue from here going into five principles by which attempting to normalize parameters can actually harm the patient. We're going to go through all five of those, Ken, starting with number one, ignoring the underlying problem. Yeah, this is super important. It's way more important to figure out why. It's the why the patient has an abnormal parameter and address the root cause. When somebody who is hypovolemic due to blood loss, they become tachycardic. This is a natural physiologic response to maintain cardiac output. And remember, cardiac output is based upon stroke volume times heart rate. And so if your preload goes down, that means your stroke volume is going to go down. And so the body increases cardiac output, usually by increasing the heart rate. This is an adaptive response to maintain organ perfusion. And we should not be attempting to normalize the heart rate. What we should be doing is, and I'm just spitballing here, stop the blood loss. And we've addressed this many times on MRAP. One of the classic ones is the patient who comes in with AFib and their rate is 130, 135, something like that. And we focus on controlling that rate, ignoring why the person's rate is high in the first place. If they live in atrial fibrillation, that's just their sinus tachycardia. That might be a response to whatever physiologic insult they have. And so we have to focus on what's the underlying issue, not the heart rate. And so temporarily correcting certain parameters can be very useful. You mentioned two of them up front, hypoxemia and hypotension. Fixing those in the short term can be useful, but we still have to ask the question, why is this patient hypoxemic? Why is this patient hypotensive? And then focus on fixing the core underlying issue. That brings us, Ken, to number two, which is inducing harm. Yeah, so it's not just about ignoring the problem, but when we attempt to correct or normalize a value, we can cause harm. Remember that every intervention has potential benefit, but it also has potential harm. We can get a number back to normal, but if the patient-oriented outcome or the poo is worse by doing that, or if the patient dies, I wouldn't consider that a win because they died with a normal vital sign at some point. Right. So our therapeutic intervention is causing harm because we haven't carefully thought that out. I'd love an example. Okay, well, rather than using a vital sign, why don't we use hyponatremia as an example? Because we often see patients with symptoms of hyponatremia. They'll come in weak, they'll have a decreased level of consciousness, or they might even be seizing. However, taking a very simplistic approach and saying, sodium low, raise sodium, that may be a little too basic. And especially if you correct the sodium too fast, it can cause harm. And one specific harm is osmotic demyelination syndrome. It was previously called central pontine myelinolitis. That can lead to a devastating condition 
where the person is fully conscious, but can't move. They can just blink their eyes. This is a horrible condition called locked-in syndrome. That's a fantastic example. The one that always comes to my mind, I remember my chairman kind of pounding it into our head as residents that they would have patients walk in off the street with blood pressures of 300 over 200 with no symptoms. And he said that we were told that you had to rapidly fix that blood pressure and they would do so. They would give them rapid acting medications to drop the blood pressure. And then they were watching patients stroke out in front of them because they had watershed problems. They had this massive reduction in their cerebral perfusion because they had been living with that blood pressure for a very long time. And so sometimes we see numbers, whether it is the hyponatremia, whether it is the hypertension, and we just want those numbers to look pretty, but by fixing them, we can really cause a lot of harm. So there's so many of these different interventions that I think can really come back to bite us. And of course, can more importantly, bite the patient in the butt by us trying to fix them. Ken, let's get into the next of those things. And when we have the interventions in mind, right, we talked about fixing hyponatremia and fixing blood pressure, we have to make sure that it makes sense to actually fix that thing, to do that intervention. Sometimes we have evidence to drive us forward. We have good studies that tell us you should do this, but often we don't have evidence. And instead, what we have is a physiologic explanation that if we physiologically can explain, if we do this, it should make the patient better. But that doesn't always work out. And that kind of bridges us into the third of the topics that this author group came up with that was important, which is ablation of physiologic benefit. Yeah, just because someone has an abnormal vital sign does not mean that the abnormality is causing direct harm or that if you correct that abnormality, it will mitigate any harm. So blood loss causing hypovolemia secondary to trauma is an example of this issue. We're traditionally taught that in trauma situations, you got to address the A, airway, B, breathing, and C, circulation. And so once we've addressed the A and the B, historical practice was to restore volume with crystalloids to improve the blood pressure, to improve that number, to normalize the number. And sure, the monitor looks better, but it turns out that, you know, diluting the blood of oxygen-carrying capacity and clotting factors is not necessarily a good thing. In addition, increasing the blood pressure can translate into an increase in the rate of blood loss. And so now we have this permissive hypotension or damage control resuscitation in certain situations. That's what's advised. And ATLS back in 2018 actually changed the recommendation from that monosynaptic two liters of crystalloid up front to one liter of crystalloid up front for class three to four shock. It turns out the most important thing in treating a patient who is hemorrhaging is to stop the bleeding. The physiologic abnormality here, once again, can be beneficial to the patient. Having that blood pressure be a little bit on the low side means they might not be popping off the clots that are forming that are helping to stop that bleeding. We also mentioned things like tachycardia. You mentioned tachycardia increases cardiac output. And because of whatever state that patient is in, if they're septic, they might need that increased cardiac output. They've got a hypermetabolic state and their body is responding by increasing their cardiac output. So blading that physiologic response can be very deleterious for the patient. That brings us to the fourth of the author's points, which is generation of associated errors. So errors are part of medicine. There's human beings involved. And so errors will happen. And we try to minimize the frequency of medical errors and the impact on patients' morbidity and mortality. There are situations where a number may appear to need correcting, and yet 
It is an appropriate and adaptive physiologic response. As we've talked about, somebody has a fever, I'm kind of expecting them to be tachycardic. But acting on a desire to correct a number, which again is in a form of intervention bias, can result in harm because of the error of the intervention itself. Now, this is slightly different than the second thing we were talking about, where correcting hyponatremia too fast can be harmful. In this case, an error in addressing the abnormal number is responsible. The example the authors used in the article was the placement of a central line in a hypotensive septic person with known cyanotic heart disease. Now, they were happy to see the monitor-oriented outcome, or the MOO, improve with vasopressors. However, it turns out they cannulated the vein and not the artery. So this was an error when trying to address an abnormal number. The observed increase in pressure was on the venous side, not on the arterial side. And because the patient had this severe tricuspid regurgitation, causing their cyanotic heart disease, the increased venous pressure actually made the cardiac output worse. This is really important for us to always come back to, is that all of the interventions that we do could lead to a medical error. This is one of those examples. And finally, the authors come to number five, which they call the training effect. Yeah, so this is where the body is smarter than we are usually. I mean, physicians, Swami, I think you're a super smart, intelligent individual. You're great, though, also at rationalizing pathophysiology. Just because something works in one condition doesn't mean it works in similar conditions or other conditions. And also, if a treatment has a net benefit in a severe illness, doesn't mean it'll have the same net benefit in a patient with a less severe illness. And it comes back to that whole idea of potential benefit and potential harm. If there's a potential patient-oriented benefit and a small potential harm, then treatment is reasonable, right? However, if there is less potential benefit, then the balance may tip over into not doing the intervention because that small harm will exceed that small potential benefit or zero benefit. So the authors of this article use the practice of hyperventilation to make their point in patients with severe head traumas. This practice of doing so does not necessarily translate into a benefit for patients who don't have a severe head trauma who are not at high risk for herniation. So in other words, we have to apply the treatment to the same population, and we can't necessarily extrapolate it to others, other conditions, or other severities. And we're always tempted to do this, right, Ken? It's called indication creep. We see that a therapy works for one condition, and we say, well, this condition's pretty close, or maybe the patient has this condition, I don't know, so I'm just going to go ahead and apply that here too. But we can't extrapolate it that way, and we can really lead to some, some true harms for the patient when we do that. Yeah, like most things in medicine, it's complicated, it's nuanced, there are layers like ogres and onions, but it's not as simple as, hey, the heart rate's high, let's lower the heart rate. I mean, all we have to do is pause for a moment, and that's what I'm encouraging people to do before trying to normalize a number. Think about the why. Pause. When somebody comes in with mild tachycardia from a fever, We don't automatically jump on them and give them IV beta blockers to normalize the heart rate. What we do is we treat the underlying condition, the infection. We do source control. Maybe give them an antipyretic. And I say maybe because the American Academy of Pediatrics says 
that in an otherwise healthy child, a fever in and of itself in a healthy child is not dangerous usually. Treat the child. Focus on the child's well-being. Don't treat the thermometer or the number on the thermometer. And I mean, you could go a step further to point out the ludicrous sort of approach to this. You know, so you got a patient, they have sepsis. Their white blood cell count is elevated. Let's say it's 18,000. I don't see people jumping on board and saying, you know what we need to do, Ken? We need to siphon off some of those white blood cells to get us under 11,000 to get that lab value back to normal. I love that example of a fever, whether it be in kids or adults, that the body has made a decision. The body has adapted and knows that if I raise my temperature, I'm going to help in fighting off this infection. Yes, there is a place where it becomes a poor adaptive strategy, but if the kid's comfortable, the patient's comfortable, that's okay. They can have a fever. That's all right. And I think we have to learn again that the body does have certain mechanisms that are important for it to actually adapt to the condition that it's trying to fight off. One of the things that we have alluded to a couple of times, I just want to make sure that it is very clear, is what our goals should be when we're looking at resuscitation of a critically ill patient. Oh, so you want me to put a point on this. Okay. So let's put a fine point on this. Our goal is poo, not lose or moose. So we're looking for patient-oriented outcomes, not lab-oriented outcomes or monitor-oriented outcomes. And you know what, Swami? I think this is time for me to coin a new term, a news. That is a number-oriented outcome. The new bias is an oversimplification. The new bias is an oversimplistic desire to get some isolated number, I don't know, a lab value, a vital sign, back within the, quote, normal range. That's what a new is. I've also heard this call by some of our colleagues, Uboxia, checking off all the boxes, making sure all the boxes are within the normal range and not really paying attention to the actual patient in front of you. Ken, let's bring this back to the literature again. How does this article relate to our reading of the evidence? Ah, uh, yeah. So uh, for critical appraisal purposes, so when you're reviewing an abstract, a paper, reading through it, how do you use this to interpret it? Well, look for the poo, people, and be skeptical of the new. Normal numbers don't necessarily translate to better patient outcomes. I'll leave you with one last example. Imagine you have a study of critically ill patients, and you're asked to interpret this study. Suppose the study's primary outcome is length of stay in the ICU, and the authors report that the length of stay in the ICU was statistically significantly shorter with treatment X compared to usual care. However, treatment X is a vasopressor that raises the MAP, and the MAP was a criterion for being discharged from the ICU. What about the patient's total length of stay in the hospital? Was there a difference in mortality? How about survival with good neurologic functions? These are the types of outcomes we should be looking for, these patient-oriented outcomes in the publication. And this is how you can normalize a number, and it can look impressive and give you publishable, statistically significant numbers, but it really doesn't mean much clinically. And that's really how this all comes together, Ken, is is looking at the outcome that is that is investigated and saying, does this actually make my patient better? Does my patient care about this outcome? We can all agree that patients care about good neurologic outcome. They care about being discharged from the hospital safely earlier rather than later. But a lot of the outcomes that we see, I don't think the patient sits there and says, well, I'm really happy that my heart rate is 95 instead of 105, or I'm really happy that my blood pressure is 135 instead of 145 systolic. 
that's not a patient-centered outcome, and, and we shouldn't be focusing on those. And we should be skeptical when we read those articles that focuses on a number instead of the outcome. And we understand that sometimes it is trying to associate that number with the physiologic outcome, but we know that that doesn't always work out. So we really should be looking for research, high-quality research that asks the right question, and that question should be relevant to the patient. The patient should care about that question that's being asked and the outcome that we're looking at. Ken, this is a short paper. I think it is free open access. I really think that everyone should read it because I think it gives us a, a bit of perspective on some of the things that we do. It definitely makes us question some of our practices and say, is this the right practice? And is this going to make my patient better? I think if we read this article, if we really reflect on some of the interventions that we do, we will actually deliver much better care to the patient in front of us, which at the end of it, Ken, that's the goal of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy, just like everything else we do in medical education is to deliver better care to the patient that we are seeing. Absolutely. And if I could leave the listeners with anything on this episode, it is to treat the patient, not the number. We should not be normalizing numbers as our primary goal. Our primary goal should be making sure that the patients have a best possible outcome. Sometimes that will mean normalizing numbers. Other times it may not. And so we've always got to ask ourselves, why is that number off? And if I act upon it, can I improve the patient outcome? What a great way to end it, Ken. This is a perfect cast, a little bit different than what we often tackle, but I think a really important concept and wraps well together with some of the other topics that we've tackled in the past. And Ken, of course, I can't wait to see you in August, but before we go, give me your last point. Well, you know, it is an overarching look at the literature and how we act and stuff. And I think next time, maybe we'll take a look at figuring out if we can see the forest for the trees. Absolutely. Nice allusion to what we're going to be tackling in August. We'll see you guys all then. And until then, don't forget to stay nerdy. And that's a wrap, my brother. For July. July is now all sealed, signed, delivered. In the past and yet in the future. Wasn't it kind of interesting this month, though? It's like, they, you know, the RCTs, a couple of them, like, there weren't that many, uh-huh. but... They're kind of good, but one at least was really good in a weird journal. It's, yeah. uh, there was a lot of interesting sort of new journals, I felt like, this month. There. Age and Aging yeah. and the Academic the Medicine journal, of Singapore. Yeah. The, you know, with some reasonable stuff in it. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Well, I'm just, I'm glad, I, I'm glad to do that. I, you know, when, when these pop up in our queue and when we select them, it makes, you know, it does make me think that there's a value to this process in EMA and not just reading two or three journals that you do have to. Do these kinds of get the wide scope. Yep. Yeah. For those of you who stuck around all the way to the end, I don't know how many, like, t- what percentage of the total that is. I imagine it's relatively small. I almost feel like with the, you know, the 80s or the, you know, early 90s, a little bit of bleed over there recommendation, we should do it almost like Doug the Slug does on the, you mm-hmm. know, first wave where people can send stuff in too. Oh, yeah. We send stuff in and we get like a little bit of a groundswell towards one thing. I'm happy to assign it to everybody else and maybe even we'll learn something that we don't well, know. Well, first of all, we know that you've seen every 80s TV show, so you're not going to find Oh, not for, oh yeah. TV show, you won't but get But a me. song, you might, there might be there something. There might be a song. It's possible there's a movie, but I oh, know. TV shows, I've cornered the market. Yeah. Well, until August. Stay healthy. Stay safe. But most important, stay stay classy. classy.